two guys in different spots staying at home, but still talking on the radio. It's a miracle. Pinder and Steinberg is only on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Well, Kleiner, remember yesterday, It's uh, it's it's been 24 hours since we last spoke about Brendan Leipzig, formerly of the Washington Capitals. Well, I guess still technically part of the uh, Washington Capitals for another few hours. But uh, he has been placed on unconditional waivers to terminate his contract. That did not take long. It was Wednesday night when that stuff got leaked online and um, we saw some of the... Uh, you know, pretty reprehensible things that were being discussed in that group chat involving Capitals forward Brendan Leipzig. Then this morning, contract terminated. Have a nice day. Like, uh, the Capitals did not waste any time. They didn't do an internal investigation. They didn't sit down and chat with them. I think probably from intense pressure from the NHL, I don't know how intense, but I would suggest that even if the Capitals had some thoughts of wanting to have a chat with him or you know see if uh see if there's something that can be done uh, i'm pretty sure the nhl behind closed doors was like yeah you're terminating this guy's contract he's not playing in the league anymore uh and that's exactly what has happened uh, I, and i don't know the capitals might have moved to strike on this before the nhl even discussed it with them i have no idea but um i i didn't see how this guy could return to the Capitals locker room after some of what we found out on Wednesday night and it turns mm-hmm. out Kleiner that he the, he won't have to worry about that he does Brendan Leipzig does not have to worry about the uh, wrath of his uh, teammates because they're no longer his teammates yeah uh, placed on unconditional waivers to terminate his contract I'm just going to go ahead right now and say a claim won't be made uh, Sportsnet 960's Peter Klein reports because uh, <laughs> that he, he's done like there, there's no way we talked about it before uh, perhaps there is a bit of a double standard for a guy who is just a role player in the league that there might be some consideration, but uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, I'm, Brennan Leipzig has played his last game in the NHL, I, I would imagine. There's just, there is absolutely no way you can bring that guy back into any locker room. There, there is not a chance. Even Even if you don't agree with how the information came out, that it came out and that People can see what he was saying about teammates and about a whole lot of other stuff. There is not not a chance this guy is going back into an NHL locker room at any point. Well, and I mean, just like think about it from the standpoint of try to put yourself in. I try to put myself in in his in his situation, and and you know, I'm I'm very happy that I if at some point like. If somebody decided to go do an iCloud leak on – now, nothing is on the cloud with me, but um, if somebody were to go do an iCloud leak and, and somebody thought that it was worthy of, of seeing, you know, what's in the photos folder of, of my phone or of your phone, like I'm pretty confident that as much as I'd be embarrassed and, you know, I you know, probably wish that um, there were certain things that wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be made public – None of them, as we talked about yesterday, none of them I'm quite confident would actually cost me my job. It's like, well, yeah, I wish you'd never seen that. I wish you'd never seen that text right. or, you know, that that might have been taken out of context based on the conversation or or that particular picture I wish uh, never would have uh, would have surfaced. Yes, absolutely. Um, but if there were things that would have got me fired and it got out there, yes, I'd be upset that it got out there, but I can be pretty confident that at some point I'd say, yeah, but it's still on me. I, I said the things, or, mm-hmm. I like, you know, like, a, a, in the end, yes, I, 
A, I don't buy that your buddy's account got hacked. Um, your buddy's account, like, I don't think he's that important to get hacked. It's such a bad excuse. Right. Like, if you go look at Brandon Leipzig's, um, Brendan Leipzig's, rather, his, um, his apology, like, there's so many things on the don't do this in your public apology, including the somebody got hacked excuse. That seems to be, like, whenever something happens with an athlete, uh, oh, I got hacked. Again, like Giannis, Giannis actually got hacked yesterday. That was a, yeah. That's that is a A-list celebrity athlete who got hacked. I don't think Leipzig's buddy necessarily fits in the same conversation about getting hacked. So, um, yeah, there is that. I don't believe he was hacked, but even if he was, okay. But they still got out there. You got to own it, and I don't really believe that he's actually owned it. And and maybe he has maybe he has personally he's got his own things that he's got to deal with i mean this is this is a pretty pretty significant reckoning for a young man's career he put himself in that spot but i guess i i guess if i were to put myself in his shoes there Kleiner, like I, I, at some point after the initial anger would wear off i'd be like Yep, this is still on me. This is my fault. I, I sewered my own career because I I said these things. I never thought they would get out, but they got out. And you still have to be responsible about what you say and the words you use. And specifically, if we're talking about racist stuff, like, yeah, you, 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 better, you better at some point understand that you did this to yourself and this wasn't somebody else's doing. No, absolutely, and it, it does kind of ring hollow when they when the the apology is someone brought to light things that I was saying. It's like, well, okay, like yeah, that sucks for you, dude. Like, really, that is tough. You still said it though, right? Like the I just had the example to the Clippers owner. I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head, but when he lost the the team for racist things that he was saying, it was well, that was in the privacy of his own home. Yeah, you still said Donald it though. Sterling. And, Donald Sterling, thank you. Yes. Um, so, yeah, still said it, though. Definitely don't say that stuff. Uh, certainly don't believe that stuff, but a thousand percent don't say that stuff. So it, it's it, it's tough to feel too bad when it's just, yes, these awful things that I was saying, no one was supposed to see that. Well, still said them, though. So not a great look. So, yeah, it's, it, it's tough to feel too, too – uh, again, it, it's weird how it came about. But it is tough to feel sorry for someone who is being reprimanded for something that they actually well, did, I mean, in fact, say. I, I feel bad. I, I, I do feel bad for anyone who loses their career out of nowhere. And, yes. And I think that's, yeah. that's – I mean, look, he's probably going to be able to still play professional hockey for a living, just not in the NHL. I, I always I always have a little bit of empathy for it. I, I don't – like I, I, I think that the comments that were made were just awful, and and I, I hope that he absolutely does uh, learn from this. And, and as he said in his poorly crafted apology, at some point he talked about bettering himself. Um, I hope that all that happens. Doesn't I, yeah, I still feel bad for a guy who's who's losing his career, and uh, but I don't like I feel bad for him. But I also yeah. think it's it's kind of you reap what you sow, right? Like it's there's yeah, yeah, I you guess, can, I guess you can I have say both. I don't feel bad. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't say you don't feel bad. It's just you don't disagree with the decision. Exactly, uh, is, exactly. Is like it's it's it. the yeah. right thing that the Caps are doing the yeah. right thing, and I'm glad they're doing it. 
but it's not like I'm I'm gleeful that this guy's you know life has been turned upside down, despite the fact that he turned it upside down uh, all on his own. Um, right. Here, uh, here's the uh, apology, by the way. Um, like, there's an entire sentence that you could just get rid of. Like, clearly Washington PR did not get a hold of Leipzig before he wrote this apology on Wednesday night. Yesterday, my friend's Instagram account was hacked, and an individual circulated images that are representative of private conversations I was a part of. Like, any time you have two excuses to begin an apology, it's not a very sincere apology, or doesn't come across as very sincere. Um, So take that part out. Then says, I fully recognize how inappropriate and offensive these comments are and sincerely apologize to everyone for my actions. I am committed to learning from this and becoming a better person by taking time to determine how to move forward in an accountable, meaningful way. I am truly sorry. That was the apology on Wednesday night. Today, his contract has... um Today, uh, his contract has been put on waivers to be terminated. Um, Okay, here are a couple of texts before we uh, get our first guest of the day on the line. A couple of texts. I still am trying to understand how an elite player would be treated differently. Can someone clear that up, please? The only thing I think that an elite player would have the opportunity for a second chance more than uh, a fringe NHLer was, and that's what Leipzig was, a fringe NHLer, or is. He's going to, like, if somebody who with with clearly an elite or a high-end pedigree has similar things happen, yeah, they're going to get second chances. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying that's the way it should be, but that's just the reality mm-hmm. of, of the world we live in, right? Yeah, we're, we're not saying an elite player should have the, the double standards or whatever. It's just that's, that there probably would have been more of a discussion than you're on waivers and we're never bringing you back. There would have been a, really? Really? Ah. Okay, that there would have at least been a bit of discussing it before placed on waivers for the uh, purposes of having your contract terminated. We are underway on a Friday edition of Pinder and Steinberg. My name is Pat Steinberg. Hopefully your afternoon is going along well. Peter Klein is at his house and Logan Gordon holding down the fort at our basement systems downtown studio. And Kleiner, we have got a, well, you know what? I'm, I'm quite excited for, I would have been excited for this period, but knowing that it's been a long time since we've seen North American professional sports, Tomorrow's a uh, tomorrow's a pretty big day in the sporting world and in the combat sports world. Yeah, I, I mean, again, as you mentioned, even if there was just an absolute plethora of sports going on as there normally would be this time of year, this card would probably still be getting some attention. But with the spotlight firmly on the Ultimate Fighting Championship, they present UFC 249 this weekend with Tony Ferguson taking on Justin Gaethje uh, at the top of the card. Also, Dominic Cruz facing Henry Cejudo in the night's co-main event, but a, a really, really good card. And um, here to help us break it all down now is John Pollock from Post Wrestling. Uh, John, how are you today? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, I guess before we get into the, the fight stuff, how, how are things in your neck of the woods, uh, pandemic-wise? How are you guys handling things? Uh, I, I think it's, it's probably similar to the situation you, you, you guys are in. It's, you know, I, I think we're at a point now where I think the public is largely growing tireless of, of being inside and are kind of pushing those, those limits that, that you can see. And, and I think that, you know, just uh, segueing over to the UFC, I think that's what people are looking at this weekend is what, how, how much can we get away with? And if this sporting event goes w- without a hitch, how much more does that 
um, open the floodgates. I think like where, wherever you're asking, that's kind of the attitude people are having right now. It's a restlessness at this point after eight weeks or so. And Dana White was showing signs of restlessness almost right away. It's not like he was <laughs> calmly going about things. There was. It, I, it I don't was, think this dude took a break a, during during this entire time. No, I, I I don't know if he knows how to take a break because um, this would have been the time to do it. But he has been very vocal about trying to get things going, and this is going to happen coming up tomorrow. Uh, UFC 249 on your guys' shows talking about professional wrestling. Uh, but you guys have discussed a, a bit of an uncomfortable feeling around pro wrestling continuing on as business as normal as one business can be with everything that is going on. So where's your comfort level with actual cage fights going to be happening this weekend? I mean, I'd be lying if I said that I was completely comfortable with, with what's happening this weekend. Um, you know, Dana White's side of things is that if we can do it safely, why should we not be doing this? And, you know, you will give the UFC the credit that they are, they are going to um, extreme lengths and spending an enormous amount of money to put this event on and have many safety protocols in place. But there's no, there's no foolproof plan that is going to mitigate all risk this weekend. That exists. There these extreme circumstances that we're living under that you guys are doing your show from remote locations. There's a reason we're, we're doing all of this and that risk does exist. And when you're adding in what is happening here with, with two men inside of a confined area, I mean, testing is great. It's better than not testing, but I mean, that has to be a, a prevailing view, but I, I think as well, everyone's rooting for this to, to go off without a hitch and hopefully this is a positive sign and we're not looking back with any regret uh, for this happening and the UFC is, is pushing forward so th there is a risk and reward ratio to this and I think people are uh, somewhat conflicted but hoping that this is just a glimmer of hope of uh, you know endemic of other sports that can also move forward here while also being aware of kind of the real world realities of what restrictions we have placed on ourselves. And there are a number of different ways you can look at those restrictions. But as we move into to breaking these fights down, this wasn't a normal training camp for anybody. So when you look at analyzing these fights, how much do you factor in the, the strangeness of, of the training camps? Or is that just a variable that everyone was having to deal with and thus not actually a variable at all? Uh, no, I think it's definitely a variable. I'm very curious to see what kind of performances we see in particular of the, the two title fights. Um, of these four having to train for five round fights uh, on top of this with not the most ideal circumstances. You have some who have the luxury of having their own gym and can at least have some access to a facility, but not access to a full team and not having the, the same amount of time as well that goes into a hard training camp and others that have not had those luxuries. A Michelle Watterson, who's just been sparring with her husband to prepare for this UFC fight tomorrow. So I, I think that everyone's going to have their uh, microscopes out watching the performances and seeing if uh, fatigue and conditioning are going to be factors. Um, today's weigh-in, it was, you know, only one fighter missed weight today. Um, that was another element to all of this is with all of these circumstances, uh, cutting weight. Um, but it seems that the, the majority of the card, everyone made weight. So for the, the main event, it is Tony Ferguson taking on Justin Gaethje Ferguson, uh, the clear favorite in this one. For this fight to go Justin Gaethje's way, what does this fight need to look like for him? I think it needs to be wild. I think that Justin Gaethje needs to come out. And if you go back to 2016, when Tony Ferguson fought Lando Venata, 
Uh, that's someone who found a lot of success in that first round, and it was just trying to uh, confuse and overwhelm Tony Ferguson with strikes. And Justin Gaethje has that ability to just and you know has kind of uh, made it his calling card of throwing uh, caution to the wind. So I think that that first round is going to be the most important round for Justin Gaethje because with each uh, successive round, I think this is more more so going to be uh, Tony Ferguson's game plan that Justin Gaethje has to adapt to as opposed to Tony Ferguson having to um, ride out the storm from Justin Gaethje. So I think that Tony Ferguson should be sitting as a very comfortable favorite in this fight, but it's going to be those first three to five minutes that are going to be the window for Justin Gaethje to um, just surprise Tony Ferguson when he's going to be at his most fresh. For for Tony Ferguson, all roads lead towards Nurmagomedov. Um is there anything that you can see from Tony in this fight that would change your opinion on how that potential fight could go one way or the other? I think what we'll be looking for in this fight in particular is, you know, Ferguson's uh, striking with, with, with Justin Gaethje. We saw when Nurmagomedov had that short notice fight with Ally Aquinta that Ally Aquinta standing with Khabib Nurmagomedov uh, was able to have some moments of, of success against Nurmagomedov and at least um, you know, show, showcase at least some kind of uh, ability to to get through to Nurmagomedov. So I think with Tony Ferguson, we know what his submission game is. We know that uh, this fight does go down to the ground. Uh, it's going to heavily, heavily favor Tony Ferguson. So I'm looking for, uh, number one, the conditioning factor, which this is a guy who just on his own decided to make weight a few weeks ago. So putting that added stress on him, but also the prospect of going multiple rounds in this fight when he's been training for this fight with multiple opponents uh, lined up uh, going back to last year when the fight was first announced. So what has that had on Tony Ferguson's, um, just what's all the wear and tear this guy has had preparing for the fight that happens. So I'm looking at his striking. I'm also looking at his conditioning as well. Um, but ultimately, Nirmaga Madoff is going to be a, a whole different formula for Tony Ferguson to solve. And I think coming out of this one, it's not going to be so much what is the game plan. It's going to be uh, what, what could possibly prevent that fight from happening another time? Because we're going to be right back to square one looking at this fight and people that are going to be crossing their fingers that that fight can happen this year. In the co-main event, it's uh, Henry Cejudo taking on Dominic Cruz. And I mentioned before uh, a level of um, uncomfortability with what's going on. Nothing makes me more uncomfortable than a Henry Cejudo promo, though. He, he has <laughs> certainly embraced the, uh, the cringe aspect of his uh, little Triple C campaign. What have you, as someone who covers professional wrestling for a living, what have you made of this new gimmick that Henry Cejudo has embraced? I mean, you have to look at it that here is a, a, a world-class uh, Olympic gold medalist that came over to the UFC and he had very little attention on himself. And he went with this character that, you know, much like Colby Covington, I mean, we can, we can look at these and they come across very, very processed, very, you know, somewhat, it, it does become groan-inducing at times, but the proof has been in the pudding that these Colby Covington and Henry Cejudo being the, the two best examples of two guys with enormous skill sets, but that was not commensurate with where the, the level of fights they were getting and the notoriety they had. This was able to get Henry Cejudo to that next level where he got the fight with, with Demetrius Johnson, the rematch with Demetrius Johnson, and has been able to parlay that into becoming 
the, the guy that, you know, kept the flyweight division around and now is in this featured fight with Dominic Cruz. So I think the results have spoken for themselves. Uh, I don't think this guy has, has made it to a level where he's an enormous difference maker when it comes to headlining a pay-per-view. I think this is kind of uh, the makeup of a card that best suits Henry, where he's in more of a supporting role than, than carrying a card on his own that, you know, he was going to have to do with Jose Aldo. Uh, standing on the other side of the cage, as you mentioned, is Dominic Cruz, uh, an interesting case, someone who might be the best bantamweight in the history of the UFC and also one of the greatest what ifs because of all the injuries that he has been dealing with. This has the chance to be uh, obviously a, a weird 2020 anyway, but this has a chance to be one of the better stories in the UFC this year if Dominic Cruz can come out and pull off a bit of an upset here. Yeah, I, I cannot agree with you more. I think this is the story of this card, even more so than uh, what's happening in the main event. For Dominic Cruz, I, I don't think any fighter on this card represents a higher risk and reward ratio for himself. That here he is uh, with what could very well be his last ever opportunity at this bantamweight championship. And with a loss, um, the prospect of him going to the back of the line at bantamweight and having to rebuild himself for another title fight at his age with all the time that's missed, um, certainly I, I think that people are going to be talking about um, how much longer he would be fighting if he doesn't come out as champion. And the other side of that coin is a win on Saturday after more than three years away. Uh, that's just an unbelievable story that here he had already a remarkable comeback when he returned to the UFC, regained his bantamweight title, doing it again after the latest series of injuries. It would be remarkable. Like that will be the story of this card if he is champion. So it's it's an interesting sliding doors uh, proposition for Dominic Cruz on Saturday, where a win and a loss just represent such a stark contrast in his career. Uh, another intriguing fight for me is in the heavyweight division with Francis Ngannou. Coming off of back-to-back -back losses, his stock was pretty low, and he's come out and just demolished Curtis Blades, Cain Velasquez, and Junior Dos Santos. But we we had kind of already established he could knock dudes out. Uh, but in this three-fight winning streak, have you seen anything from him that leads you to believe that whatever was ailing him against uh, Stipe Miocic and, to a lesser extent, the Derek Lewis fight, um, that those things have been corrected? I, I think ultimately it's still going to come down to you know how he can perform in an extended fight where, I mean, we're talking about three rounds tomorrow, but, but five rounds if he's fighting for a championship. And I think that question it still remains uh, unanswered. And I think that if that fight were to happen with Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou now, uh, more than two years removed from their first fight, I still don't know how many people would be expecting a different outcome than, than the first fight. So that that's still going to be a question mark. I don't think that even gets answered in, in this fight um, because he has to deal with, going a lengthy amount of time and also with, with the wrestling that that's still going to be um, the big question marks because the, the power that that's always been known. Um, and in this uh, particular fight with a guy in Jarzinho Rosenstruck, this is a guy who has equal amounts of power and that could either produce a, a really quick knockout or it could be both guys very tentative. And this resembles that Derek Lewis fight where you have two guys um, that are just loading up and waiting for that power shot and not wanting to be the first to leave that opening. So uh, this, this is a fight that could go either way. 
On the prelims, uh, a fight that could headline many a TV card, at least, and, and potentially a pay-per-view as well. Uh, Donald Cerrone taking on Anthony Pettis. It's it's an interesting time for Cerrone, coming off of the Conor McGregor loss. That This, to me, has the feelings of a, a fork-in-the-road moment for him. And quite frankly, uh, a loss could send him down the path of the guy who he's fighting, and Anthony Pettis, who it's been a rough few years from him. Uh, do you see the, the kind of same importance for Donald Cerrone as I'm seeing? Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be a big part of Donald Cerrone's legacy is that establishing that big streak and then when it comes to the championship fight, faltering. And then, you know, it's been consistent throughout his career that he goes back to square one and he builds himself back up for that title fight. I think now that, that we're looking at him at, at this age, it's that, that's a really big ask on Donald Cerrone uh, to be able to uh, rehab himself and, and build himself uh, back up. So a, a loss here, I think that that's only going to a- add to that dialogue. And Anthony Pettis, he's he's someone that I, I don't think quite gets to do because here's a 500 fighter in the UFC, but also a guy who has just faced a, a murderer's row from lightweight to welterweight and even dipping down to featherweight at, at one point. And it's it's an enormous quality of opponents that he has had. Um, but but someone that certainly b- both men, I think, are very much in need of victories here. And the fact that it's happening at welterweight, uh, this is going to be, you know, uh, an, another experiment to see, you know, Anthony Pettis. Can he find that that success at 170 pounds um, after after, you know, numerous changes in, in his weight class over the last few years? Uh, last one for you, um, and kind of switching over to the, the world of professional wrestling. But as we hear some of these sports talking about coming back, one of the things that's being mentioned is, well, you'll have the whole sports calendar to yourself. And that was one of the justifications for some people for the WWE to continue running shows over the last couple of months. And now we're starting to see them getting into record low ratings on a, a weekly basis. Is there anything that leagues like the NHL and the NBA can take from the WWE and how their ratings have fallen off? Not necessarily comparing the two, obviously, but is there something that the WWE did that had these ratings fall off that the NHL and the NBA can kind of learn from? Yeah, I think it's a really great, um, interesting comparison that we we can look at because, yes, it it is different looking at, at pro wrestling versus legitimate sports, but how much of an impact these empty arena atmospheres are going to have on the audience. Because, you know, in professional wrestling, it's so much more reliant on the crowd. And it's like they've pulled the plug there where the energy is sapped out of these arenas. But, you know, yes, when you when we're sitting down and watching a fight night or an NHL game or an NFL game, we are focused on the winner or the loser. But we're kidding ourselves if we're pretending the atmosphere is not a huge part and I think once sports come back, we're going to realize how much the audience was baked into that to that package that you're accustomed to seeing. So much like uh, pro wrestling, they got one or two weeks of the novelty factor of being in these empty arenas. And then we started to see the audiences decline week after week. And now we're, we're seeing these historic lows. Uh, conversely, for, for sports, I think the UFC is going to have a big night on Saturday, in particular those prelims on ESPN. Then we fast forward to a fight card Wednesday, a fight night card next Saturday, one a week from Saturday. What's the demand going to be like? And everyone is saying that there's such a, such a hunger for sports, and I think there is, but I, I do feel that the atmosphere is going to wear on people, uh, and we're going to find out with, with the UFC over the next few weeks if, if they can maintain that audience level. And, and certainly um, other sports, I think, can learn from that as well that the the atmosphere is a huge part of the viewing experience and if it's that 
if it's a negative environment and it saps the energy out of the viewer, I, I don't know what, what the demand is going to be past those opening couple of weeks when other sports leagues are returning to empty venues. Uh, John, awesome stuff, man. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this. Enjoy the fights on Saturday. And uh, most importantly, stay safe. Same to you guys. Thanks very much. Thank you. Very much appreciate it. There is uh, John Pollock from postwrestling.com. Time for us to take a break here on Pinder and Steinberg. Still a lot to get to as the show rolls on. Uh, an interesting conversation coming up with Arash Madani before we hit 3 o'clock. This is Pinder and Steinberg. Sans Pinder on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg continues on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Quick segment, just a couple minutes away from Arash Madani. He'll join us at 2.40 this afternoon, the latest on the Canadian Football League and their plea or their case to the federal government about uh, some assistance and some funding. They went in front of the House of Commons yesterday so we'll get the latest on that from Arash Badani who has been talking to a number of people both in the federal government and around the league about this story so that is something that is very interesting to keep an eye on and at the top of the hour the um the scouting controversy in Vancouver Klein can you remember a story ever about a director of amateur scouting being this large than what's happening in Vancouver right now with Judd Brackett and this whole controversy I I the whole thing I don't know how actually interested I am about the story itself. I'm more interested in the fact that it's a story and it's turned into as big of a deal as it is. We got Sat Shaw from 650 in Vancouver coming up at the top of the hour as well. Yeah, I I don't know if I can remember a story about a director of amateur scouting, period, let alone one being this big and this talked about. Obviously, the circumstances with nothing else going on are, are playing into this, but it's it is a very hot button issue. It seems like out in Vancouver right now. So interested to find out why and what's going on with, with all of that, because it feels very contentious right now. It's bizarre. And yeah. And at a time where things are all right with the Canucks, they're having their best season in quite some time. And, and things look to be looking up organizationally and, and future wise. And what fascinates me is the fingerprints that former flames, AGM John Weisbrod has on this situation in Vancouver. That is, is maybe the most interesting part to me because look, he, he came in with a lot of fanfare to Calgary when he was first brought on. And then it went off the rails pretty quickly. And, you know, some of the some some of the same things that you're hearing in Vancouver, you were hearing here, and then he wasn't with the organization very shortly afterwards. So that's really interesting to me. I have a um, I have a uh, a bit of a revelation to make. Oh. I think I have found the thing to um, make my days start well. Like I, I've got the perfect way to kick off my day. I started doing it on oh, wow. Monday, and and it's been. It's been pretty amazing. I won't lie. Yesterday, personally, was an awful day for me. Like I've had mostly, it was all COVID-19 pandemic related, and I've had mostly good days during this whole thing, but yesterday was a really bad day. Um, I, uh, it was first, uh, for a few different reasons, um, yesterday was the first day I was on the uh, verge of involuntary tears when it comes to the uh, pandemic. It was just, for whatever reason, yesterday was an absolute mental pummeling for me. Um, but other than yesterday, things have been great this week. Here is my uh, here is my tip. It's not even a tip, but this is what is uh, now my new routine. I'm starting the morning 
with a butter croissant. It's been unbelievable. I, you know wow. me, I've been pretty pretty strict on the keto thing and the low-carb thing, but here I am in pandemic. I'm still working out pretty hard. I'm getting a ton of steps in every day, so I'm like, you know what? I friggin' love croissants, and I want to start my day with one. So when I went shopping on Sunday, uh, I bought a six-pack of croissants, and I warm it up in the microwave, and that is my breakfast along with a, a little protein shake. And, and it has been – it's like I, I honestly no, – I, I'll wake up in the middle of the night, and I'll look at the clock and be like, yes, a few hours away from the croissant. That's how much I look forward <laughs> to this friggin' croissant. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad you found something because, I mean, A, uh, croissants are delicious. Now, are we just going just plain on the croissant? Are we going to graduate into a few more things being added? Well, what is what is the evolution of the croissant for Pat Steinberg? Right now, if I like when if I'm at Superstore this week and shopping and I find a like a six pack of cheese croissants, that'll be the next one. Um, okay. But as of right now, like the I like just a straight up butter croissant, unbelievable. I love them. Um, so I don't know if I need an evolution, like just the 15 seconds in the microwave, get that thing just a little softer, three bites and you're done. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't even need to evolve it. It's perfect the way it is. It's, it's a perfect French pastry. I love it. Um, no, so that I, is my, I agree that there are, there are a few flaws with the croissant. I will say, um, I live close to a place that makes uh, croissant with uh, vanilla custard in the middle. And I would fight you for those. They're so good. So I mean, maybe, maybe look like it is on its own perfection, but just saying, maybe try to branch out a little bit. Now, now that we've ventured in the world of carbohydrates for a little bit. I was uh, one of the uh, I, when I my summer vacation last year um, and like I'm gonna try to do it. I'm just gonna relive it this summer because obviously I'm not getting one this summer. Um, but my summer vacation last summer was uh, in it was almost all in Germany. Did a road trip in Germany, um, but spent a couple of hours in France, just on the um, eastern border, inside the eastern border of France in Strasbourg, and I getting a, a pan au chocolat in france was pretty cool the the chocolate croissant mm. that was pretty cool just to say that you've done that in france um it was uh and it was pretty good we just found a coffee shop and they had one I'm like well we better get that so um that was pretty cool but yeah the the butter croissant perfect uh we got a rash madani in just minutes before we do that though uh it is may 8th let's take a look back on this date in flames history Let's go back in time and celebrate the amazing history of the Calgary Flames. Today in Flames History Starts. starts Now. On May 8th, 1986, the Flames were battling the St. Louis Blues in the Clarence Campbell Conference Finals. The Flames had a 2-1 series lead heading into this Game 4 matchup. It was a physical battle with 11 roughing minors handed out. The Blues would do the winning on the scoreboard, taking down the Flames 5-2 to even up the series. Lanny McDonald had both goals for Calgary in this one, his eighth and ninth goals of the postseason. Today in Flames history, celebrating 40 years of Flames hockey in Calgary on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. For whatever reason, growing up, my my mom told me that the Flames lost to the Blues in the 1986 Stanley Cup Final. And for the longest time, even like as, as I was doing sports radio, 
knowing that Patrick Waugh won the cup that year as a rookie and knowing that the Habs beat the Flames, I still, for whatever reason, thought the Blues also won the Stanley Cup in 1986. Um, huh. That... Uh, that that is also um, that is also another glimpse into the very strange and bizarre mind that is me. So uh, <laughs> they beat them in the uh, conference final before moving on to be uh, play the Habs and uh, eventually dropped them in five games. Speaking of uh, the Flames, we will have Colin Patterson on a little bit later on today. Patter and the Flames alumni making a really generous donation. We'll tell you about that a little bit later on today as well. He's Klein. He's Logo. I'm Pat Arash Madani. Joins us next on Pinder and Steinberg Sports. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Back to Pinder and Steinberg, Calgary Sports Talk in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Bringing people together makes us great, but in a pandemic, it makes us vulnerable. Because the first thing to go and the last thing to come back is large gatherings, and large gatherings is the lifeblood of the CFL. Our best case scenario for this year is a drastically truncated season, and our most likely scenario is no season at all. The plight of the Canadian Football League is one that all of a sudden has taken center stage over the last week or so. Ever since last week, we found out, I think it was Thursday of last week when the report first surfaced, that the league was appealing to the federal government for some financial assistance. The number $150 million was the first number we heard. Then we found out a little bit more context to that. It's been a pretty big story ever since then. And the story took a step yesterday. And to find out why, how, and what it means when it comes to that next step from yesterday and now into today, uh, we welcome in our good buddy Arash Badani from Sportsnet who's been all over this for Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. New article up online right now. It's on the main page at Sportsnet.ca uh, as we speak right now. Hello, Mr. Madani. Happy pandemic. How are you doing on this Friday? Mr. Steinberg, I'm well. Hope you're doing well also. Yeah, and uh, hope you're hanging in. Tell us about yesterday. Uh, we heard the clips from Randy Ambrosi. We saw the quotes from you and other reporters on Twitter Give us, a, I guess, a, a little bit of a synopsis about what yesterday was and what we found out. Well, I think what's important to point out here is that the CFL yesterday in their 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern time uh, presentation to the House of Commons uh, Finance Standing Committee, Pat, they were one of eight. They were one of eight organizations making a pitch for public funding to the federal government arts and culture and festivals and music, uh, they, they were part of that too. And that was just from five to seven. From three to five, for instance, it was the fisheries going to that same, to that same finance standing committee. And this afternoon, I spoke with the chair of the finance committee, Wayne Easter, uh, who's from my neck of the woods in the Maritimes. And he said that already there have been 154 different organizations who have pitched to that House committee looking for funding. And as of today, there are 74 more organizations that want to come before the Finance Committee. Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Canadian Artist Representatives, Electricians, the Globe and Mail. So the CFL is part of, their one organization is part of a bigger kind of picture here. And the commissioner said, look, we need the money. We need $30 million right away. Uh, and maybe upwards of another 120 more. And he said, look, in a worst case scenario, we're not going to 
play football in 2020 and that the future of the league is very much in jeopardy. So it was under that backdrop uh, with the feds and under that backdrop with the league that they made their presentations and then committee members asked the commissioners some questions. And and you go read your article today, and and you've talked to a few MPs since yesterday. One of the one of the big things that came up during the questioning period of Commissioner Randy Ambrosi is what the plan would be for players, and you know why they weren't represented yesterday, and I guess what the communication has been like between the players and the league. That that's something that the league right now doesn't have a, a firm answer for when it comes to where. This funding might go right. Yeah, and I think what's and I'm going to I'm giving a lot of context in this interview because I think Pat, a lot of our look, I'm one of them, and each time I've I've had a chance to speak with a number of MPs, and I say, look, I'm a sports reporter. I don't know exactly the procedure on government, so can you please educate me on next yeah. steps, etc. Um, but What, what happens here is it's important to understand, look, we, we cover sports and we follow sports. And those listening, most teams and most leagues operate under a cloak of secrecy. It's for competitive balance, and, you know, they don't want opponents knowing what they're doing. And then from a money standpoint, they're trying to make as much as they can. So when you're privately owned, you don't have to show your balance sheet. Well, so the CFL falls under that same that same umbrella. They operate as much as they can under a cloak of secrecy, except that you have community-run teams in Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, and Edmonton that have to make their financials public. Well, now you can't operate under secrecy right now because you're going to the federal government, you're going to taxpayers, and you're asking taxpayers to provide tens of millions of dollars up to $150 million dollars. And so what the federal government's saying is, okay, well, you want this money. What's your plan? What's your business plan? And Randy Ambrosi said, well, you know, we want to work as a partnership, and we're going to give some of it back, you know, with anti-bullying initiatives and community programs and tourism videos and in stadium stuff. And he said, no, but where's the plan? And there is no plan yet. And so first and foremost, what Pam Demoff, an MP who is a CFL supporter, former Argo season ticket holder, fan of the Argo, she said, we need a plan. You know, and if, if it makes sense with the federal government, the league, you know, we want to help them, but we need that. But fundamentally, too, Pat, where Ambrosi really dropped the ball was with the players. Because if you're asking taxpayers, if you're asking the public, if you're asking those who, you know, the public views the players, they watch Bo Levi play. They watch Mike Riley play. What, what a couple of committee members who are CFL supporters are knowledgeable about the league, mm-hmm. uh, one of them is a 40-year you know, veteran of broadcasting with CTV Sports, Kevin Waugh in Saskatoon. He said, well, where are the players? And Randy Ambrosi said, well, we're meeting with them today. And they said, well, how much of the $150 million are the players going to get here? And the commissioner's answer is, we have to work that out. And so they they just they just um, it, it, that's not the way you want to go about it. Not having a business plan and not being able to have a better answer about what's happening. So from who you've talked to, is it kind of the feel that the the CFL came into yesterday a little ill prepared? Is is that kind of the general feeling here? 
Depends who you ask. A lot of people feel that way. I asked Pam Demoff, the, the MP, who, and she has spoken with, with Randy Ambrosi, and her line to me was, I didn't think he portrayed what they were looking for as well as he could have, which is a very government answer and a very political answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the CFL had to do better yesterday, Pat, and they didn't. They had to show a more united front. Let's remember it was last month that Solomon Elamimian, the president of the CFL Players Association, sent a memo out to all the players saying the CFL is not responding to our calls. Now, on May 4th, uh, Dan Ralph, the Canadian Press, reported that the CFL and the PA are back at the table. Pat, this is the sense I got yesterday from just listening and watching the proceedings as they unfolded. And, and from covering and following um, collective bargaining over the last, you know, couple of CBA sessions going back to, uh, to 2014. I've gotten the sense that I got the sense yesterday that Ambrosi got testy. He got impatient when he continued to be asked about the players, because from, from watching how bargaining went and from how, and there was just a total disregard that the league has for the players. You know, the players are of such little significance to the league's governors and probably the league office but it's who the public identifies with. And the governors want to reduce Canadians. They want to reduce Canadian starters, but now they're asking the Canadian government for funding. So it's a funny little conundrum they found themselves in. You know, Ambrosi was solid at the beginning when he was scripted in his opening remarks that somebody else probably wrote for him, Pat. Um, but when he had to be taken to task on legit questions, he just had no idea what to do yesterday. Hmm. Well, Rash Badani's with us from Sportsnet. His latest on the CFL's uh, ask for government funding uh, with the pandemic and the prospect of losing the season is up right now at sportsnet.ca. From who you've talked to and, and from what you know, is it your belief that the league does need this funding if they're not able to play this year, uh, if they're not able to have fans in buildings, so on and so forth? Like, is it your belief that this, regardless of how yesterday went, that, that this is an important and, and pretty worthy ask for the league? Well, I think the league is going to get some money from the federal government. I don't think they're going to get all of it that they're asking for. I think that their next step, along with the federal government, and I think MP. Pam Demoff, and I think that MP Bob Bertina are going to propose that the provinces get involved. You know, province of Alberta has two CFL teams. Province of Ontario has three. Quebec has one. BC has one. Manitoba, Saskatchewan, each with one. Okay, let's get the provinces now on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, have them be involved. Um, so I think, though, you know, that's kind of going along. But fundamentally in all this, too, you have the three community-run franchises, and you have six privately-run teams right there in Calgary, why is Murray Edwards not – look, there are, Canadians are losing jobs. They're worried about paying rent. They're worried about putting food on the table. Why aren't the wealthy owners of the Canadian Football League doing more? They already absorbed some losses. But, you know, that's the other question that's come up is why aren't they doing more? And, Pat, the other thing that's really come to the forefront is just how broken the economic model of the Canadian Football League is. That the community-run teams do okay. Montreal, Toronto, BC, Hemorrhage Cash, Calgary, Hamilton, Ottawa, privately run, depending on the season, depending on how things go, are in and around break even, give or take. 
But that's not a sustainable way to run a business overall. You know, Ambrosi's figure yesterday, as he testified before the House of Commons, was that owners in the CFL lost $20 million last year. So I think what we've learned through all this over the last two months is that um, the virus itself, the COVID-19 virus, affects people with pre-existing conditions even more, and it affects leagues with pre-existing mm-hmm. conditions even more, too. Um, the the whole kind of fracture with the Players Association and the league is fascinating. You'd think that at a time like this, this would be a time where, you know, being in lockstep would be the most important thing for league and its Players Association. Why Why has that been, from what you understand, as, as fractured, and why has the communication been as, as difficult as it's been? Well, it's because, you know, they're – well, this is where it started uh, from based on the reporting I've, I've had is that in – and I think we've talked about this before, Pat, that in paragraph 16 of the standard player contract, it states that if the league is suspended, the contracts are void. Mm-hmm. So that would then mean if the contracts are void, everybody becomes a free agent. The Players Association is saying, well, hold on a minute. You know, well, what's going on here? And they weren't getting answers from the league as quickly as they wanted, and they claimed that the league wasn't calling them back. Look, yesterday the CFL needed to be there with its Players Association. That's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the committee members, plural. There were two who came out and said, where are the players? How much are the players making? The quote was, the players are the heart and soul of this league. The quote was from a committee member, the players are the heroes of the league. And Randy Ambrosi didn't believe the players belong there. He thought the CFL should just be there. And I thought that really represented the divide here, that the league believed that they are not only separate from the players, but they are almost above the players, but it's the players who the public identifies with. And so there needs to be a shift in thinking from, from the league and the commissioner's office because the, because the federal government that's going to – you know, that, that's involved in the finance committee is saying so. That's not me saying so, Pat. That's not you. That's not, you know, that's not from the Players Association. That's from our lawmakers. And so there has to be a fundamental way, you know, shift in thinking. You're not in a collective bargaining session anymore. You are, based on what Randy Ambrosi said, the future of the CFL is in peril. So you have to play ball by somebody else's rules. And that's something that they have to do. Final thought: What uh, from your reporting? What comes next? What are uh, next steps here for the league and and for finding out the, I guess the the next courses of action if they're going to want to have this funding put in place? Well, there's no time frame from a government perspective for when an answer would be given on if the CFL is going to get any kind of funding and how much. Um, There is now, because of the crisis, there is now a COVID committee off of the cabinet. And then it's also up to the cabinet, Prime Minister Trudeau's cabinet, to make a decision. Well, they'll do not just with the CFL, Pat, but with all nonprofits and charities and and the rest um, moving forward. So there's also no specific deadline from the Finance Committee. That's not their mandate. 
Um, but also, the sense I got is because the players didn't uh, show yesterday and because the committee members want the players involved, that maybe they'll have to go through this again, that they'll go before the Finance Committee again, except there are 74 more organizations who are lined up who want the ear of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance. Uh, so, look, we're, what, second week of May right now. There's no way of knowing exactly when, but um, but they'll probably have to come back with the players, which means that the league and the players who met today, they have mm -hmm. to come to, to some kind of understanding and agreement themselves before they go to the federal government again. Um, so the timing on that is, you know, truly to be determined. Right. Good reporting, my friend. Appreciate it. Um, and uh, enjoy your weekend, my man. We will talk to you, I'm sure, very soon. Thanks for doing this today. Okay. Appreciate it, Pat. Thanks, man. So Rash Madani from Sportsnet, he has uh, been covering this story with the CFL and their request for federal assistance uh, from the government. He joins us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup delivery available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 248-3344. My, um, my personal opinion on this is that I don't believe – it's crazy for the CFL to be requesting money um, from the federal government. I, I think that it, it is needed. I, I do believe that they are uh, in a tough spot. Uh, economically, they were in a tough spot to begin with. And then you throw in a worldwide pandemic, and, and I, I do believe that they are in need of some assistance. Um, but everything that you're reading from yesterday is that, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily the um, – it wasn't the greatest first step, so we'll see what happens from, from this point going forward. I, I don't necessarily believe that $150 million, bam, just blank check, but I do think it's a, it, it's something to consider, or at the very least, to listen and, and get a little bit more information on the situation. So we shall see. It's Pat Steinberg along with you. This is Pinder and Steinberg on a Friday afternoon. Uh, coming up next, switch our focus to something we talked a little bit about earlier this hour what is happening in the scouting department for the Vancouver Canucks? One of the most bizarre stories I can ever remember. We'll get the latest on that from our buddy Sat Shaw at Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver. Coming up next, this is Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg in the afternoon, Sportsnet 960 The Fan. I can't ever remember a story involving a director of amateur scouting getting quite as controversial and getting quite as much national coverage as the one that is currently playing out in front of us in Vancouver with director of amateur scouting Judd Brackett. Like, for instance, here in Calgary, Kleiner, we know mm -hmm. that Todd Button is the director of amateur scouting. I've, I've interviewed the man countless times prior to drafts and all that type of stuff, but you know, that's usually a market-specific thing. I don't know how often the director of amateur scouting becomes a national story. Well, that's kind of what has happened in Vancouver with Judd Brackett and the controversy there about his future. I could try to give you a Reader's Digest as to what's going on, but uh, we've got a much better guy to discuss it with. Welcome back to the program. Pat Steinberg, Peter Klein, along with you on this Friday afternoon. And now from our sister station in Vancouver, Sportsnet 650, we welcome in Sat Shaw. Uh, Sat been all over this from a reporting standpoint and has been uh, breaking news on this one left and right for what feels like sat the last number of months this has not been a uh, quickly developing story but i guess 
Give us a, a little bit of a synopsis as to what is going on in that scouting department and why there's so much controversy surrounding the future of Judd Brackett. Well, Judd Brackett is widely considered one of the top scouts uh, and uh, scouting directors around the National Hockey League. And he's had a lot of success in Vancouver. Look at Elias Pedersen, look at Quinn Hughes, look at Brock Besser, and a number of other young players that have coming up. And, you know, the future looks bright with the young guys they have on that team. And a lot of that credit has gone to Judd Brackett. Now, perception-wise, Judd Brackett's ability might have been somewhat uh, exaggerated in in the sense of he gets credit for every single thing that has gone right and he has admitted himself too that you know it's a collaborative effort and you can't just give one scout all the credit it's all about working together if you have a number of people who are smart and work together and have good opinions and are able to debate discuss and even if they they get heated they're able to come to a consensus and work together and pick good players that's a type of a type of environment that Jared Brackett has worked within in Vancouver for the most part and what he has been wanting to do and a lot of the success has been named to him because he's the, uh, the the director it's like you know a gm gets credit for everything that goes right or wrong for instance mm-hmm. and the director of scouting oftentimes gets all the credit for everything good and gets the blame for all the bad too for instance so let's you know that's the, that's when it comes to how, why judd rack is, is considered uh such a great scout and why the canucks fans love him so much now within the last year the relationship with jim benning uh the rest of the management group and Judd Brackett hasn't quite been on the same page where Brackett feels like he has been excluded from the type of things and discussions he would usually be involved in in years prior, especially when Trevor Linden was here. And we all know what happened with Linden and Benning, and it was a not-so-amicable split between the two parties. And, you know, it was kind of the start of the dynamic is shifting when it comes to the power structure and team management and Lyndon and Brackett worked very well together. So you can draw your own conclusions to how things may devolve down the road when Lyndon is gone, for instance. And then it has led to the Canucks and Judd Brackett not really getting anywhere on contract extension talks. And this is kind of festered. And instead of, you know, solving it and getting ahead of it, it's been months of we'll get to it. We'll get to it without actually getting to it. My understanding is, Judd Brackett and the Canucks have not talked contracts since late January. And at that point, the questions that Judd Brackett posed to the Canucks when it came to the collaboration, if they can get on the same page philosophically again and the dynamics can kind of align again, that hasn't been fulfilled or discussed. And the contract that was offered was not a raise, and it was a two-year deal when it was coming off a three-year contract. So you can interpret that the way you want. So essentially, mm-hmm. it's been in a holding pattern now since late January, and no progress has been made, and the Canucks keep saying they're going to get to it, and now it's very obvious where it's leading, but they haven't really resolved it. Are you uh, like? Are you surprised this thing is turned into like? I, I and I'm not even exaggerating here. I, I follow a ton of people in Vancouver, whether it be uh, your fellow media cohorts, whether it be some of the the more prominent fans, like uh, you know, there's Taj and, and some of the other prominent uh, right. fan Twitter profiles out there too. And it's like every second tweet in my timeline is about Judd Brackett. Are Are you surprised this story has blown up the way that it has? Actually, not really, because it's Vancouver. And when it comes to Canucks Twitter and how things kind of fester and how people have really drawn lines in the sand where where they stand and, you know, people have their own 
you know, segments of the fan base, right? Like it's very clicky and, you know, the ones that are anti-management uh, are very loud about it. And those who are pro-management are very loud about it and everything gets spun into a narrative. So, no, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, when it comes to the Twitter reaction of it. And the long story short, the reason it's so heated too is it all goes back to the mistrust a lot of fans have in the current team's management group, which goes back to the day they started. Now they've been in, in power for six years, now made the playoffs once, and yes, they built a bright future, but there's a lot of mistrust based on how the first few years were handled, a lot of stuff that happened. So this has been a ongoing soap opera, guys, for years. Yeah. What uh, – where where does – John Weisbrod enter into this conversation because it's fascinating to me. Uh, he was here as an assistant general manager in Calgary before that regime was fired and then resurfaced in Jim Benning and, and his management group a couple of years later. From, from what you understand, is, is there a philosophical clash there between Brackett and Weisbrod? Well, I mean – I can't say specifically, you know, like I, I want to be fair in how I report things as well. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy for you to draw your own conclusions based on, based on certain things. And, you know, you know how it is when you're reporting on a situation like this, it's delicate, you know, you're talking about certain people and, and what, what happens with it. So you try to be as fair as possible because it's really easy to overstate certain things. And as much as somebody may be a problem behind the scenes, it may be spun unfairly to the point where, it's doing damage to a person's reputation when it's not supposed to be getting that far, right? So that's something to keep in mind that sometimes a line that gets crossed a lot nowadays, right? But I'll say this. It's very much Jim Benning's show and very much John Weisbrod's show. And they have set the new dynamics as far as how things are going to be going on in that front office. And people that are there are more closely aligned and understanding to that. Now, again, this is something you can look at pessimistically and say, hey, they're going to be iron-fisted and they don't want opposition, somebody else might say, well, no, they're actually aligned and they don't mind debating and you know coming to a consensus. Right. It's more about them trusting each other. So it comes down to do you trust these people or not? And based on how you feel about them, it's one of those two sides you're going to end up on. So what does this uh, – how does this end up um, – how does this end up? Like are, are you expecting – Judd to no longer be with the Canucks organization when when this is all said and done? Oh, yeah. I mean, at, at this point, I, I'd be absolutely shocked if uh, somehow Judd Brackett came back to the Canucks, right? I mean, and, and just look at how the story has evolved, right? And, you know, I'm saying this, and someone can point at me and say, well, you're the media reporting and perpetuating and making it a bigger story, you know? But the reality is it's blown up, right? It's huge. It's very obvious now that things are not aligning. And I wouldn't be surprised that at some point before the draft, like Ellie Friedman himself has mentioned, that they, you know, cut ties with him and just tell him stay home until your contract runs out. Because at this point, it doesn't really look like it's a workable situation. Yeah, no doubt about it. We're uh, in conversation with Sat Shaw Sports at 650 in Vancouver as the Canucks have found themselves in the news when it comes to their amateur scouting department. He joins us here on Pinder and Steinberg this afternoon. So obviously, under normal circumstances, this would be a, a bit of a wrench, I suppose, into draft preparations. But with a draft where we don't know when it's going to be or what it's going to look like, how do you do? You get a sense of how this might be affecting the, the Canucks draft preparations for this year. Well, I, I think at this point they have a pretty good idea of you know where to go on things, and you know, I do think not having Judd there, especially for the draft itself 
you know, it is a loss. You know what I mean? Like, because I can't speak to the aptitude of the other people that are in charge and running things. Like, I think highly of a number of scouts and, you know, managers within that front office. Like, I think Chris Gear, the assistant general manager, is a really bright guy, does great work. Jonathan Wall, who works in the front office, is great, does good work. And they have a number of scouts who are really talented and know what they're doing. So I don't want to say, like, you know, they're, you know everybody's incompetent because they're not. But the question comes down to, you know, how well organized have they been heading into their draft? Now, the issue with Vancouver here is they don't have a first-round pick. They don't have a second-round pick. So when you're looking at drafting from round three to round seven, you know, we're talking about going deep in the draft anyways, which in some ways you can actually say if you're not as prepared for the draft, well, you might actually miss out on some talent that might be slipping through the cracks. But they do have some competent scouts. I I don't think it's going to really just sidetrack their entire situation considering they don't have a first or second-round pick. And with not having those picks, uh, a lot was put into this season, especially with the the trade for Tyler Toffoli. Um, there, there's a pretty important chapter that's still yet to be written about this season. We don't know what that is going to look like. How does, uh, I guess, not knowing what the, the back part of the season would have looked like, even if we come back, it's going to be a lot different. How does that affect the Canucks going into the offseason? Well, I mean, it, it does confuse things, right? Like, if the season gets played and they're playing the playoffs and whatever happens, then, you know, whatever, the pick will be gone. Now, if the season outright gets canceled, do they have a case to get a compensatory pick one way or another? So could that be a discussion point down the road for the 2021 draft or, or later even or something along those lines? So I think that, that's something that plays a part into kind of where they go this offseason and the cap situation. But I think overall – the Canucks want to kind of gradually become a better team. They've taken some good steps in that direction. And I think this offseason, the plan had been to improve the defense more, try to keep Markstrom, try to keep Toffoli, and try to get creative with some trades to get some app capital back in draft picks. Obviously, with everything that's happened, the cap situation around the league is unclear. And all of a sudden, trying to move salary out becomes even more complicated than it was before. So some of those plans have kind of now been changed. But it's very much about trying to win now. When you go out and get JT Miller, when you sign Tyler Myers, and you're spending a lot of money on the cap, the goal has to be one way or another, find a way to get better. And in these circumstances, the extreme ones, this is this kind of time where you know the good GMs have to separate themselves from the rest of the pack. How do you navigate the situation? It got even harder for this management team now to do so, and they may have less assets to play with to try to improve this team, which at the end of the day was just battling for a playoff spot this year. With the Jacob Markstrom situation there, that that was obviously one of the big stories for Vancouver this season. Do you have a lean one way or another on, on if you think Markstrom will be a Canuck next year? I think so. I think at this point he's going to be back. And I've always thought there was a deal to be made. The, the negotiations hadn't really moved forward, but I always thought that there's a three-year deal to be made, maybe even a four-year deal south of $6 million. And I think now with everything that has happened, it's more likely for a lot of free agents, especially if the cap is flat, just remaining their situations, if that's an option, because moving becomes even more complicated. So I think one way or another, Jacob Markstrom comes back, whether that's a short-term deal or a three- or four-year deal. But I think at this point, they're going to hammer something out. And where does that leave Thatcher Demko? I mean, a lot of teams are going with the two goalie systems now, but Thatcher Demko, pretty highly thought of in the Canucks organization. Where would a, a longer-ish term contract for Markstrom leave him? Uh, well, I, I think that ultimately, if a long-term contract gets signed for Demko, uh, I mean for Markstrom, then Demko's gone. And ultimately, I think you know Demko long-term may not end up out of Vancouver, but I think 
It really depends on what type of contract he signs. If Markstrom signs a long-term deal, I think they might even explore trading Demko this offseason because of the uncertainty next year and trying to get a backup goalie cheap in the market, which should be flooded with them. So it depends on the contract Markstrom signs. But ultimately, long-term, I don't think they view Thatcher Demko as necessarily being the guy. And he would have to do something pretty impressive if he's still here next season to convince them he is the long-term answer. Chatting with Sat Shaw here on Pinner and Steinberg on uh, Sportsnet 960, the fan. Pat? Uh, Sat, just a couple more before we let you go. We know you got a uh, show that you got to get ready for a little bit later on this afternoon as well. But um, just quickly on, on the season that was, and, and let's assume for a second that the NHL will restart and we will get a resumption to the season. Where were you on, on the Canucks before the break? Where were you on the way the team was trending? Just an overall thought on, on how the Canucks were playing prior to the pause. Well, I think it's a really fascinating season for the Canucks because I think they obviously took a big step forward this year, and a lot of that is attributed to the young players and J.T. Miller. And as much as a guy like Tyler Myers gets criticized, and as much as the contract could end up being onerous down the road and $6 million per year, you know, it's, it's a lot of money too and all that sort of stuff, he did improve the defense. And if you kind of break down the metrics, he was the second-best defenseman behind Quinn Hughes this season. Now, the bar isn't super high because a lot of guys underachieved defensively, so we're not talking about him playing at, at an elite level. But I think he helped out, and I think the Canucks got better. And they're that type of team that has some key young guys that are still getting a lot better and understanding the game, that if a couple more things click with them, they can take a big step as a team. But they're kind of a team that's trying to figure it out this year. And I actually thought towards the end of the season, despite getting a lot of bad results with you know, Demko and Louis Demang playing because Markstrom got injured, team play-wise, they actually started playing a lot better. And I kind of felt like they were going to turn the corner towards the end there. And, and I'm not going to say they're going to go on this massive run, but I thought they're going to push themselves into being a playoff team. And once they get into the playoffs because of the goaltending, you never know if you can win a round or two or whatever. But I think overall, it was a positive season for the Canucks. I know there's a lot of drama, and you can look at the cap situation and all the other issues that have gone on with the team. But if you look at it from an overall team standpoint, it was a positive year. And I do think, generally speaking, there's a lot there to work with with the Canucks that they have a bright future if you play your cards right. And finally, what can you tell us about the possibility of Vancouver being one of these hub cities if the NHL goes with that idea to restart the season? Well, I mean, I think it works. Now, one thing Elliot Friedman mentioned, there is a push that whatever cities host as hub cities won't allow the home city to play here. So the Canucks won't get an advantage if that happens, potentially, because they may have to be forced to go play in another city. So we'll mm. see you know, what ultimately happens. But as far as Vancouver goes, I think it works because BC's done a good job of flattening, flattening the curve when it comes to COVID-19. The response has been very good. They've done a really good job of containing things and understanding how everything works. They've prepared the healthcare system for it. So if there is approval from Dr. Bonnie Henry, who is uh, leading the pandemic response in BC, and from the premier, then they're saying that this can be feasible. And as long as you can have the testing capacity and not take away from public need, then this can work out. And Vancouver is well-situated to be able to pull something like this off because of the way downtown Vancouver is situated and all the hotels to be able to house everybody. So I think Vancouver would work as a hub city, and especially when you look at how low the case numbers have been relative to the rest of the country. Yeah. Good stuff, my man. Hey, uh, apparently I'm on your show in uh, less than three hours, so I'll, uh, I'll talk to you again shortly. But thanks for doing our show today. 
Well, I'm excited. We'll talk again, buddy. <laughs> See you, Sat. Thanks, buddy. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks. Sat Shaw from Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup or delivery available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 248-3344. Lots there. As, uh, Vancouver has got themselves in a very – I wonder if – that management group with Jim Benning and co ever thought that there would be a controversy this large about their amateur scouting director, but that's exactly what's going on. And uh, that's been one of the uh, bigger hockey stories over the uh, last couple of weeks during this pandemic. Yeah. It's, it's strange how this one has really picked up steam and it's, it really is true that the Vancouver Canucks, there's just nothing normal about anything that goes on with that organization. There's always, <laughs> so there's true. always just, it's never just 100% clearing sailing, right? Like there's always just a little tinge of something just to touch off with anything going on with the Canucks organization. Even, even in their elite years, it was like that. Like when you had oh, Roberto yeah. Luongo in the Stanley Cup final, and I love Lou. Lou is one of my favorite players from this generation just because of 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 how he um especially during the end of his you know of his playing time the way that he uh was able to make fun of himself and and the way that he was able to not take himself so seriously but like even during the year they went to the stanley cup final you've got luongo getting mad at tim thomas for not giving him enough credit or whatever like the whole always so weird in vancouver it is the strangest market to cover a hockey team i can't even imagine that's why i i have so i follow so many people in vancouver just because it's always like a tmz episode out there it's it is absolutely bizarre um a couple of things it's uh, pat steinberg and peter klein along with you we're going to hear from general manager brad true living coming up in just a couple of minutes he did his weekly media news conference today and uh, he's been doing those on a uh, somewhat regular basis he does them uh, once a week and you know there's always some pretty good information in there there's always some uh, good stuff to sink your teeth into no signings to talk about or anything like that but uh, we'll hear from Brad True Living coming up in just a couple of minutes to uh, get the latest on the Calgary Flames don't forget our 7pm salute to essential workers um, and our spotlight for essential workers as well we've teamed up with Atlas Pizza I wanted to thank them uh, for teaming up with us on this event and and, uh, on this campaign. We want to continue to push the 7 p.m. salute. Get out there on your porch, on your deck, on your balcony, whatever the case may be, and uh, show some support for all the essential workers who are keeping our city going. Uh, We've been selecting one lucky person for the last number of weeks and awarding them with a Wild Rose prize pack. I just wanted to say thank you to Wild Rose for being on board with this campaign. Wild Rose Brewery wishing you and yours health and safety during these challenging times. We support you, the hardworking characters of Calgary and the rest of Alberta. Brad True Living, General Manager of the Calgary Flames, coming up next on Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Calgary guys talking Calgary sports. Pinder and Steinberg are only on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Time for our weekly check-in with Calgary Flames General Manager Brad Living. Not as much news to announce from the GM. Like last week, there was news about three signings from earlier in the week. They had signed Emilio Peterson. They had signed Dustin Wolf to ELCs uh, as draft picks. And they had also signed Johannes Schinval, defenseman out of Sweden. None of that news today. But some good questions and answers from the GM of the Calgary Flames. And uh, a little bit of an update as to what's happening league-wide about the potential resumption of an NA season here are some of the highlights from gm brad true living in conversation with the calgary media today in terms of a league update and i caution everybody 
Um, there's, you know, I, 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 I certainly, I certainly feel there's some momentum building would be my comment. I think there's momentum building, um, but nothing is, there's no firm plan. So I caution everybody. I know there's lots of stuff out there until such time as firm direction is given. I think we all have to be very careful on, on, you know, determining that there's a set, you know, there's a set path that we're going down at this point. Um, everything from, you know, when you look at the completion of the season, and regular games being played, um, you know, you hear one day they are, some days they're not. Are we going right into playoffs? You know, what, what, what's, what does a playoff look like? How many teams? Is it hub cities? Is it not? When does phase two, um, when does phase, when do we go into phase two and then, and then the draft? Those are all sort of the topical discussions, but it's important to note that nothing and I and I underline that and highlight it. Nothing is firm, and the league continues to look at all sorts of opportunities or, or options, I should say, um, and working hand in hand. And, and just the fluidity of the situation um, in each individual market, um, you know, makes this such a challenge. So nothing confirmed, but I know that. Um, you know, it, it, it feels like, you know, certainly some momentum being, um, you know, gathering up and, and hopefully as we get into the days ahead, hopefully we, we, we continue to move this thing forward. Um, the, 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 the next step, as we've talked about for a while, is getting into phase two. You know, phase two is that opening of the facilities, um, getting players into you know, being able to, to to come back into the facilities and begin their training on a sort of on a on a on a whether it be a small group basis, um, but on a volunteer basis, if you will. So not there yet. Um, you know, to that point, and again, I'm I've been a little bit underwater here the last three or four days just with our with our our draft meeting. So. I'm probably not as in tune with everything that's going on, but you know, some, some things that you see here this morning of um, some provinces, I think there was an announcement in, in Ontario of, of um, you know, the sports teams being able to move into phase two there. Um, you know, until, until that's happening in all places, I think the league is looking so that there can be consistency um, that those those it opens up for everybody at the same time. So they're they're requesting feedback to keep them apprised of what's going on in our local in on all the local communities. Um, uh, but until but until such time as we get direct um, direction, um, we're we're in the status quo here. Um, the you know I guess the the other update um league-wide if you will um we do have and i think it has been reported but uh we do have a conference call actually after we're done this one with the american hockey league um and that's a, a governor call that i'll be on uh with brad pascal and we will get an update there in terms of the the american hockey league plans and and sort of an update um my understanding is the results of that call and 
and whatnot will be will be announced Monday. Um, but that we'll we'll get. Uh, I'm anticipating to get a little bit of direction um, on our American Hockey League call later later today. Um, as far as the team update, quite frankly, um, as you said, we you know we really kept you guys busy last week with all the the announcements. So we uh, we pumped the brakes here a little bit this week. It's been uh, it's been crickets. Um, um, that being said. I joke to, to guys, we've got to get back playing so I, you know, we can't be as, as busy as we are. It just seems that the days are, are long. Um, and and I would say for us right now, you know, getting and being prepared for the relaunch obviously is is a priority. And so all the all the different all the different things that that would entail, we're trying we we're trying to stay ahead of and stay on top of. Um, and the draft preparation is is really, you know, that's where that's where we're burning the jet fuel right now is is getting prepared for that. Um, and like I said, it's on a on a almost a daily basis right now with our staff in preparing, walking through our you know our list, our board, and getting getting those things set um, over the course of the coming days. So that's really where it's it's been busy. Um, but as far as newsworthy items um, coming out of HQ here, that's uh, we're sort of short on that right now. So that would be my update. And, uh, you know, fire away if you've got any questions. Hey, Brad, um, I'm assuming you didn't tune into that Korean soccer game. <laughs> uh, they're kind of like the first pro league to start uh, playing in front of empty stadiums and, and all this. and. There's rules like no spitting. You can't speak loudly to your opponent. Like you can't shout at the opponent. There's substitutes on the sidelines wearing face masks, of course, with the team logo on them. You got to have that on there, product placement. Safe to say that you guys, not you didn't see that one, but the league will be studying anyone who comes back in any fashion around the world in pro sports to learn about what they can and can't do and should and shouldn't do. And further to that, can you imagine an NHL without spitting aloud? Yeah, well, to answer your question, Eric, I didn't see that. Um, <laughs> I'd like to invoke the no yelling at each other into my house right now because that, <laughs> that would work out well. Um, but yes, the, the answer is I think the league's looking at everything. I, I you know, you, you, and yeah, we're all trying to stay on top of all the different sports, different leagues worldwide to see. You know, the interesting thing for me is just the coming back part and all the all the regulations that are going to be involved. You know, the people that have been working tirelessly is is on our side is our is our medical team. You know, preparing for um, you know what could take place, and it's not going to probably just be open the doors and everybody comes in. It's going to be you know whether you're in small groups, what what testing has to take place not only before but on a regular basis how do you how do you keep people separated to a certain extent you know prior to going on the ice so all those types of things what procedures are they going to have to take um so the you know you're trying to just it's it's a it's a it's an avalanche of information that you're trying to digest quite frankly um but certainly watching as we start to see people come back you know 
it's not going to be perfect, right? You're going to learn from what goes well, what doesn't go well, um, steal what information you can from around. And I think sharing information is going to be key, but certainly the league is, yeah, paying attention to all of it. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully we can make the best decisions when we, when, when those decisions are made. Brad, kind of on that, that same, you know, along those same lines, can you give us a sense, and I'm sure it was done a while ago, but can you give us a sense of kind of how thorough the readiness has gone at the Saddle Dome in terms of, you know, cleaning the locker room and everything that would have happened since guys were last in there? Yeah, you could, I mean, you could probably eat off the floor as, as funny, you know, they, that thing's been scrubbed seven ways to Sunday right now. And, and regularly, you know, it's amazing how the world's changed in seven weeks, quite frankly, like just all the, you know, um, you know, the, the machinery that's even gone into the dressing room to, you know, clean the air and bomb the place and, and do all the things, you know, there's, there's probably way more scientific terms than that. But um, yes, there's been a lot of procurement of 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 cleansing um, equipment, and 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 that's just going to be the new normal, right? And um, you know, I know that the medical staff, um, each department, as much as you know, managers have calls. You know, on the business side, have regular communication and calls with the league. Well, the equipment and, and training staff. And medical people have had regular communication and and just preparing for just that. You know, what is this going to look like when we come back, and and what are the steps that medical teams have to be prepared for, not only just with the athletes, but cleaning the rooms and sanitizing certain area. You know, everything and and so lots of lots of calories have been burned, Wes, in terms of the preparation, um, uh, from a medical standpoint, but certainly sanitization is uh, we'll, we'll put it under there is it's it's next level <laughs> and um and you know depot and and kent have led the charge in that on on our end brad you hearing anything more on an early june draft coming out of the board of governors meetings on monday i haven't um i haven't aaron at all no we've uh, i know it's still a it's still a it's still a decision um to be made um, but we want to be ready for it. Um, and we've talked about it. I, like I said, I, I think I've talked about this on a couple of the calls, you know, we've made our position, um, you know, we've, we've told about our, our position, but I also stand from a league standpoint, I totally get it. Like the league is, that's why they run the league. They, they, you know, we're, we're worried about one team. They're worried about 31. Um, so that's why we're doing what we're doing here. We'll be prepared to act um whenever we're supposed to act so uh, but in terms of of any more direction right now i don't uh, we don't have that and and i'd love to be able to tell you we're going to know you know we're going to know we're going to know on this date um we'll stay tuned as as everybody else is and and once that's finalized we'll be prepared to go but i think the one thing that is fair to say you know, I think we're doing a virtual draft. I don't think we're showing up in a city to draft. Um, and so that certainly is going to take some planning from a league standpoint, from an individual standpoint. So I don't think you're going to get a call and say on Monday, you know, we're drafted on Thursday. So 
Um, there'll be enough lead time, um, but you know, certainly watching watching the drafts that have taken place here, NFL, CFL, um, there's a lot of work that has to go into them. So we'll we'll have lots of time to to prepare. Brad, with um with uh with the little bit of momentum that the NHL uh, does have um, in terms of uh, planning to resume at some point, um, knowing that a quarantine would be mandatory. <laughs> outside of the country have you guys made plans to bring guys back already um is that every man for themselves or is there a team how hard have you looked into that there's nothing set to to get you know to have players moving today um you know again that's that's going to come down to once once we get uh definition on when when we can get into phase two but we keep everybody, you know, apprised that, you know, we, there has been some talk that as we get further into May that this could happen. Um, but there's been no, um, you know, we haven't told people to get on planes today for sure. Um, you know, we, we, we kind of update our guys daily. Uh, my plan is to have a, a call with our guys next week, um, you know, a full, full team call. Um, and just give them, you know, the most updated information we have at that time. And, uh, and as far as the quarantine, I think those things are all working. You know, that's, that's the leagues. So when you calendar this thing, that's, that's certainly going to be part of it, right? Is you're going to have to take in, into consideration when you look around the league, how many players have got a, well, and you really look at it for the Canadian teams and the amount of players that are out of country and, and, uh, you know how you know i think there's been discussion and communication with the with the, the federal government in just terms of um understanding each of the all the regulations and then that, that would be certainly part of our our calendaring when we say okay we're doing we're going into this phase i think they're going to account certainly for any type of quarantine that's got to take place Brad, when we see this week about different types of returning possibilities, i.e. a 24-team playoff, is that, um, is that the competition committee that meets a certain amount of time on the phone? Is there any way to kind of take us through how those discussions even or how often they occur? Yeah, Pete, they, there's, there's a lot of discussion. So there's all, you know, the the all the different um, groups, whether it be managers group, the governors, um, they've, they've, court, they've got a player committee um, that they speak with, obviously constant communication between the league and the, and the NHLPA. Um, so you're all the stakeholders have a voice and um, you know, the league sort of sorts through that information and you're trying to balance it. You have to start with a, it's like everything else. You're not going to make everybody happy, you know? And, and so if we all start from the, from the standpoint of we're in unprecedented times, probably isn't going to be perfect for everyone, but what, what makes the most sense? Um, and, you know, then they, they do a really good job of soliciting feedback from, you know, right from the granular, granular aspect of each individual team to bigger groups. Now that, you know, from a PA's perspective, from a, uh, a player committee's perspective, from a manager's perspective, and then ultimately from a, from a governor's perspective. So they'll take all that feedback. 
um, and league, the league will ultimately make a decision on, on, on how we come back and what that looks like. But there is, you know, there's, and, you know, they solicited feedback, everything from playoff format to, you know, how everything would look back in, from, from each individual team and, and individuals and managers and governors. So um, they certainly probably have lots of suggestions in the old, suge the suggestion box is full, I'm going to say. And uh, and then they'll try to sort through that. Brad, have you thought about the um, the possibility of being holed up in one spot for weeks or months at a time? And like, is that is that something that you try not to think about, or is that something that you've had to kind of prepare yourself for if they do come back in in that format? Yeah, we've 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 tried to prepare ourselves, Pat, for everything, you know, and and certainly. You know, I, I say it as I said at the onset of this. You 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 got to be careful of, of going down and 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 saying, okay, here's the path we're going down. Let's let's prepare for that because it, nothing's finalized. But I think you try to, you know, you got to be you got to have all this preparation done so that once a route is chosen, you're at least down that path a little bit and you're prepared for it. So certainly, you know, the idea of you know the hub city, for lack of a better term plan is something that we've we've looked at um and so what does preparation look like preparation is okay how does that even work um how might that you know how do how do our how do we prepare for that from from just a daily routine so how would we deal with the players how would we do meetings how would we do our treatments um you know from a coaching so you go through each layer and then from a coaching perspective, okay, how do we prepare for in whatever fashion we come back and how do you prepare for certain opponents? So the coaches have spent countless time looking at different opponents and, and preparation for those. So you just sort of take every potential outcome and try to do the very best you can to prepare for it. And part of that is, you know, that there is the potential that you may be going to a, a place and being there for a period of time. How do you now deal with that in terms of all your the things that you need to do to, to perform? How do we, how do we, how do we make it the best scenario and give ourselves the best opportunity? So we've certainly given it some thought um, and not so much part of the, oh, geez, you know, what are the positives and negatives? But if that's the, op if that's what's going to happen, how do we, how do we prepare to, to, to have success? Hey, Brad, just in terms of uh, the decision-making, like for, for the draft in particular, I know in the CBA there, you know, it's specified that the draft will be in June at a date specified by the commissioner and it'll be seven rounds. But beyond that, there, it, there seems to be a lot of gray area, at least in the CBA. So in terms of the, the steps that have to go forth to set a draft date, is there anyone who really, you know, needs to consent to it? Or is it sort of a case of depending on what happens, there's different things that need to happen? Yeah, Ryan, I think, I mean, certainly we've got a CBA that you, that, that outlines our, you know, basically our operating procedures, but you, you also, on top of that, you've got, you're, you're in, you're in the, uh, in the midst of a, you know, once in a lifetime pandemic. Um, so that's the overriding theme that there may be alterations to, to what normally happens. And I think we've seen that in all of our lives, right? It's not just, um, 
the rules say this, so this is what we have to do. Uh, we're we're going to have to read and react and and ultimately make the best make the best decision based upon the information that we do have. So our um, all I can speak to is our preparation. There will be a draft soon, or there will be a draft at some point. Uh, we we want to be prepared sooner rather than later in case it does happen in June. Um, I it'll be seven rounds, my understanding. I don't think it's going to be any less or any more. Um, and that's what we prepare for. And uh, and so no excuses. You know, we we we'll do our work and 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 conduct business as, as usual, as, as usual as it can be. Now there's going to be some different nuances with it, but you know, we're not going to get, we're not going to, we're not going to get distracted by that. We're going to, we're going to focus on, we're going to have a draft. Let's be prepared for it to, to happen. The rest of it, the virtual part, all those things, we'll deal with it. But the most important thing when you speak about the draft is, you know, getting, getting your, getting the players in the right order. I mean, that's, that's the pure basis of a draft, whether you have it on normal circumstances or not normal. Let's get everybody in the right order and, and make sure that we're, we're, we're doing, you know, doing our jobs when the time comes. Just a little bit of the conversation Brad True Living had with Calgary Media earlier today. Some of the highlights from the general manager of the Calgary Flames on restarting the season. He talked about how... Uh, momentum is building to potentially get back, but stresses that nothing is set in stone. Uh, some other interesting notes about how it might look if the NHL is able to come back and resume the season this summer. Okay, we'll take a break, come back with a quick segment, and at the top of the hour, just after 4 o'clock, little wild card Wednesday. You're locked on Pinder and Steinberg, Friday edition on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg continues on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Well, Mother's Day is coming up this weekend, and we have been running a promotion with our friends at Panda Flowers all week long. If you missed it on the morning show, uh, we do have our winners for our promotions, and each of these people are going to be winning a $70 bouquet of flowers delivered to their mom on Sunday on Mother's Day. So congratulations to our five winners. Danny McDonald and his mom, Phyllis, Paul Cowell and his mom, Liz, Sean Young and his mom, Nicole, Riley Fix and his mother-in-law, Cheryl, and Corey Murphy and his mom, Dina. Uh, congratulations to all of our winners. And more importantly, uh, congratulations to all five moms and uh, happy Mother's Day to anybody who qualifies on Mother's Day who's listening. Thank you for all, your do, for all you do as moms, and uh, hopefully you treat your mom or your wife or uh, whatever the case may be uh, treat her well on mother's day on sunday thanks to panda flowers for being teamed up with us all week long on this promotion panda flowers real florists in real flower shops order online at pandaflowers.ca you might still be able to if you've screwed it up on mother's day you might still be able to uh, head on over to pandaflowers.ca and save yourself this mother's day thanks to panda for teaming up with us i also wanted to uh, pass this along um calgary flames foundation has announced an additional two hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars in funding through the 
Flames Foundation COVID-19 Community Support Program. Uh, these donations follow the announcement of $1.15 million in donations to 15 charities about a month and a half ago in support of vulnerable populations, food mobilization, mental health support, relief funding, and family support services. That brings the total donated to relief efforts to $1.38 million from the Flames Foundation back into the Calgary and Southern Alberta community during the pandemic. Included in the recent contributions is $100,000 directed to the Calgary Health Trust for the purchase of iPads to help launch virtual visits for hospitals and congregate living seniors facilities. So awesome stuff. Um, And uh, head on over to calgaryflamesfoundation.com for more information. But an additional $265,000 pumped into... uh, Southern Alberta and the City of Calgary for charitable initiatives during COVID-19. Great stuff done, as always, by the Flames Foundation. The Flames alumni with a pretty cool donation today as well. We'll tell you more about that at 4.30 this afternoon when we chat with one of the pillars of the Flames alumni, Colin Patterson. But up next, little wild card Wednesday. It's Klein, Logo, Steinberg. This is Pender and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Let's take a spin and find out all the things we never wanted to know about our afternoon show. It's time for Wild Card Wednesday. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Welcome back to the program. We were in the middle of a heated off-air conversation when, uh, <laughs> when we started Wild Card Wednesday. We can talk to each other off the air, but Logan's got to make switches on our board before we can go back on the air. So Logo waited to the last like he was very kind and considerate on this time. He waited to the last possible second to switch us over. But we were just about to find out um, how Klein uh, mouthed off a teacher in college and got kicked out of Mount Royal University. Is that <laughs> was that the, the way the story was going? Uh, not not exactly. Although uh, <laughs> one wasn't a, a, a huge fan of mine. Um, but uh, no, we were talking about uh, my lack of graduating from college and the. Uh, Saying that I dropped out is a bit of a, a stretch. I got a full time job and didn't go back for my last semester. So, oh, did you like? Did you technically? You technically graduated though, right? No, no, I still okay. needed. Uh, I came one elective away from graduating. I don't know what that means, but I think you're doing great. So that's all. Well, that thank matters. you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it means I didn't take introduction to Japanese as a course and couldn't graduate broadcasting because of it. <laughs> Fair point. Um, <laughs> it is time for Wild Card Wednesday. We're in the Wild Card Wednesday casino as we speak right now. We've got our big slot machine. We've got Klein. We've got Logan Gordon. We've got me, Pat Steinberg. We've got five categories, pop culture, personal life, careers, sports, and wild card. Each of us spin the slot machine once and ask the question when the category pops up. Uh, it's It usually turns into awkward fun, and we'll see if we can make that the case again today. Wild Card Wednesday on a Friday with Logan Gordon leading us off. Let's go, Logo. Sports. A number of NFL teams either rebranded entirely this offseason or made some slight changes to their uniforms. It was one of the biggest sweeping changes that we've seen. And since Peter Klein uh, loves jerseys probably more than anyone I know, which NFL team did the worst job at rebranding themselves with new jerseys and which team did the best? Ooh, I like this. Okay. The obvious one for the worst is the LA Rams because you can look at that logo and think, is that the Chargers? 
Or is that the Rams logo? That is not a good thing. So the LA Rams, clearly, clearly the worst job of rebranding. Um, and as far as the best is concerned, Say I like... Say I, it. I like... <laughs> Say it. I like the Bucks going back nope. with the um, a bit of the old school look, but the Chargers did really well, so I'll I'll probably say the Chargers. Um, th- I'm completely in agreement with you when it comes to the Rams being the worst. It's just awful. Like I don't know what they were thinking. They didn't need to do it. Um, no, it was the- perfectly fine how it was. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't love it. I don't. Not only do I not love it, I think it absolutely, it, it looks absolutely terrible. Um, so yeah, best though, I, I'm biased, but those Bucks jerseys are tight. Like I love those. The helmets look unbelievable. I did not love the last look of the Bucks, but this new look is outstanding they got the third jersey the copper looks unbelievable the red and the white uh looks throwback to when they were a legit good team everything about it is nostalgic but also in line with the way jerseys should look today i love the bucks rebrand i gotta be honest with you this is the greatest offseason in in tampa bay buccaneers history or at the very least the greatest offseason since the year after they won the super bowl like we've got uh, we've got Brady news. We've got Gronk news. We've got great new jerseys. Like it is, I don't even care how much they disappoint me this season. This has been the most fun I've had as a Bucks fan in fifteen, almost twenty years. So it's it's been a great off season, and the jerseys are just part of it. So yeah, worst Rams, best Bucks. Yeah, and we haven't seen or we haven't been told yet what the Rams are doing with their actual uniforms. We just know that they made a really terrible logo that doesn't make any sense and doesn't really represent a Ram all that well. Uh, I am obviously biased as a Chargers fan, but I did think that their whole rebrand was phenomenally done and exactly what the fan base wanted, which is just me and Pinder. Uh, the two of us are the fan base. Um, there were some, I didn't, I didn't love the Falcons. They were kind of like the gradient thing. It's just, it doesn't work. It's too, you're trying to be too cool with yourselves. You should have just gone back to a, a cleaner version of the retro look, but I'll actually give the New England Patriots a little bit of credit. I liked their, uh, their new jerseys, a kind of a simplification of just the red, white, and blue and kind of dropping the silver and. A uh, good time to rebrand. You just lost the best quarterback in maybe NFL history, so might as well start a new tradition. I did like the Bucks though, too. That copper jersey, uh, one of the better ones that came out this offseason. And the Browns, what did you change? Yeah, Apparently, I know, like, like, what do you Browns rebrand, but it's still brown, orange, and white, it's, and looks exactly yeah, the you, same and nothing. Good, the, good, good job. Like, Somebody on the text yeah. line says Falcons don't look good. They don't. The Falcons jerseys look pretty. Yeah. The text line says Falcons went full XFL, and it's it's pretty apt. Like that looks like, and not even the new XFL. That looks like an original <laughs> XFL jersey. That like, looks like yeah. it should have he hate me or Ant or or Calvillo on the back. ATL like, on the front. Like yeah, don't do yeah. don't be that guy. Like yeah, that, that's, that's bad jersey. And and I would have said that even if I liked the Falcons, I despise them more than anything. But uh, those are just right. bad jerseys. It just make it that much easier to hate the Falcons, and I've got no problem with that to begin with. Yeah, and Tampa Bay really righting a wrong after going from jerseys no, they that were look so like bad. 
the the jerseys look like out of a movie that didn't have any rights to NFL stuff, so they just made up a jersey on their own. And those were those were awful. So I'm happy that the greatest quarterback of all time isn't going to be seen wearing those awful threads. All right, good first question, Logo. I like it. I've got the next one. Let's rock and roll as we continue on Wild Card Wednesday here. What do we got? Personal life. Um. Okay. Do we want to – I'll give you guys a choice. Do we want to go somewhat fun or do we want to go, like, uh, deep and introspective on a Friday? You choose. Oh, jeez. Your definition of fun might vary from ours. It, it won't be. Cre- <laughs> it won't be. Uh, it won't be creepy fun. I promise. Go deep, Klein. Yeah, I. Okay. Go deep. Um, <laughs> what was? I, I the, the the question came to me because I was for whatever reason I was rewatching True Detective season two, which was just an awful idea. Season one oh, and season what? three of True Detective are really really good, like really good. Season two is just an absolute wasteland, and they got lost so many times in creating that story. But I was rewatching because I was like, maybe if I give it a try again, it'll be better. So I was rewatching True Detective season two. It's not any better. But Vince Vaughn has this line in True Detective season two, and he says, he I don't remember, he's talking to somebody, and he's saying, there are flagstick moments in your life that you'll look back on and say, that's a moment that my life changed forever. That's a moment where I'll always remember that that's a, a milestone moment in my life and everything changed, whether it's a tragedy, whether it's um, something good that happened. So what can you remember the first flag sticker milestone moment in your life where everything changed from that point forward? Holy crap. Jeez. No Holy you guys chose to go deep and introspective. Oh, you might I would have to, need a minute. Yeah, you might have to give us like you might have to give us yours first here, Pat, and then because I'm sure yeah. you have one. If well, you give the question, I I wrote the question down seeing that episode, and then as I was asking it here, I remember that I had to answer it as well, um, <laughs> which is uh, a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a uh, an issue. But I know I I do have one. I I just don't always like to talk about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I uh, I I got started in the. Uh, I got started in the dating game late, um, so I, I, you know, just I was very nerdy, uh, very shy. We've talked about uh, some of my uh, exploits um, being awkward around the opposite sex before on this segment. Uh, so it took a while for uh, me to get the uh, the first uh, the first relationship, but when I did, it lasted about three years. But um, it was a uh, it was a very traumatic relationship, and it was one that uh, ended in very traumatic fashion, specifically on my end. And yeah, that that's the easy one for me because it it, it literally opened my eyes to things in in the world that I never I, I had never experienced before. Um, it uh, it took it took. Um, years not months to to get over and and you know like it it only i can only say in over the last like 12 months that i i'm actually over it like i i i remember exactly the time that i um realized that yes i'm fully over it it took about five and a half six years to get over so uh just the 
all the things that I've learned, all the things that I've experienced, all the uh, the good and the bad, and I would say probably more bad than good, but still, like that that would be it for me. So that would have been February twenty Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day twenty thirteen uh, was uh, was that moment for me, no doubt about it. Is uh, Valentine's Day the day that you asked her out, or the day no, that it that's all the ended? Day that, that's the day that she uh, that's the day that she dropped me like a rock. It oh. was, uh, uh, what she did it on Valentine's Day? Oh yeah, did it on Valentine's Day and and left with another dude and and uh, sh- who she's now no. married to. I found out that's when I that's when I realized that it was finally over. It. I was walking around Hamburg, Germany, um, and I got a notification on Facebook saying you might know this person. So I was like, I don't know this person. So I looked it up, and it was her. It was it was with her new last name, and I was like. Oh, well, no wonder I don't know this person because it would have been with her original name or maiden name Then I would have known, but it was with a new last name. And had that been, you know, a year or two years or three years prior, that would have run me over like a semi truck. Instead, I, I felt absolutely nothing. And that was that was when I realized when I was like, wow. I'm actually fully 100% over this thing. It took six years um, or, yeah, it took more than six years, Feb 2013 to, to July 2019, so almost six and a half years actually is what it took for me to get to that realization 100%. So, yeah, uh, wow. February 14th, 2013, that'd be it for me. I, wow. I, I, um, I just feel like I need a moment to – to contemplate everything, I want to look her up and I want to tell her not to hurt my Patrick like that. Um, wow. I mean, Klein, you got – I mean, I think there's an obvious one for Pete, but if he doesn't want to take it, then uh, – Is he going to say WrestleMania or is he going to say his wedding? <laughs> would, it be, would, it be the night, would it be the night that uh, I, uh, I, I was there when you first started dating your current wife? Uh, that, that certainly would be uh... – uh, a major one for sure, but not the not the first one. Uh, the first one would actually be uh, grade ten basketball. Um, I was well, no, yes. okay, yes, yes. Wow. I'm no, I just wasn't expecting that. That's all. Okay, fine. Um, but yeah, no, like I uh, wasn't in a, an awesome place mentally, and ended up with some really really great teammates and a, a really good coach who was kind of on a like intern thing so he was only like six years older than all of us um so he was kind of the old wise one uh, of the group and just really kind of came into my own as a human being in terms of any type of confidence i had and stuff like that it, it really it, it felt like a, a major turning point at the time and, and looking back it still does so um mentored by a, a real good group of people um was kind of a, a big kickstarter for me Nice, nice. By the way, uh, if you were to go with the night that you met your uh, beautiful wife, Kim, I I remember it vividly because we were at the uh, Ship and Anchor logo, and, like, it didn't matter. Every time you looked over in Klein's direction, he had his tongue down his current wife's throat. (laughs) So... Like, I was like, and and like the we we all worked together. We were, I think we were at a Roughnecks game. Uh, yeah. So Will was there, I was there, Klein was there, uh, Kim was there. Uh, I believe Ashley, our promotions coordinator, was there, oh. and a couple of other people. And so we all went to the ship and anchor after the game. Remember when you could go to to bars with uh, people there? And uh, I don't remember when there were games. Time. No, I don't. Uh, remember, yeah, remember when there were sporting events you could attend? But yeah, we went to the <laughs> game and we uh, we went to the ship afterwards and. I, th- I 
I don't know exactly when the courtship began, but I remember when it got to first base because, uh, yeah, it was non-stop make-out city at the ship and anchor. I was like, oh, oh well, I guess we got an office romance that's starting here. And funny enough, Logo, they left early that night. Wow, I can't imagine <laughs> Why that would have happened? Peter, now did was have you and Kim talked before this night, Peter, or was this like your first night actually talking and uh, playing tonsil hockey? First, uh, first night actually talking, uh, and it's funny she doesn't know what Whoa, we're talking about. Whoa, you moved! Wow, boy! She actually just dropped some food off for me and uh, gave me the finger and walked away. So I was like, oh yeah, no, this <laughs> love is, is great. Th- this has progressed well, but yeah, no, it was. Uh, yeah, first night talking, we ended up just sitting beside each other at, a, at the Roughnecks game, and I'm remarkably charming. So, yeah. I was just going to say, you must have been. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Wow. My... Yeah, we, we talked a whole, aside from, like, she was a receptionist part-time at Rogers, and at the old building, our station was on the second floor, and I was always a fan, but I was always out of breath when I got up there, so I... The only thing I could ever. So. It's the worst time for his mic to go out. Yeah, I know, because now he's got to ask his question. Kleiner, uh, you, you should uh, you should reboot your uh, mic, and Logo, you give us your answer now. Uh, well, the easiest one for me is uh, obviously Pat losing my virginity six months ago. Uh, no, I'm kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's a joke. It was 15 years ago. Um, something like that. I can't remember the date. Um, probably for me it was uh, – Getting my uh, acceptance letter to Mount Royal uh, nice. a few years ago, I was in a, a total dead-end retail job that I hated. Uh, I just had a car accident, a pretty bad one, a few uh, months before. And so I just kind of took a big uh, you know, relook at everything and decided that I was going to go back to school. I didn't jump right uh, from high school to university because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, when I came across broadcasting, uh, it was a good choice for me, and it kind of set everything off in a good positive fashion for me. I made a lot of good friends there. Obviously, uh, a lot of people I still keep in contact with. Uh, Riley's here at the station. We were classmates together. Uh, Dalton with the Flames and the PR staff there. Uh, lots of people that I met through that program that uh, moved on to good things, and we still keep in touch. So that's probably uh, my moment. That's a good one. And you know what, Logan? You made the right career choice. Let me tell you that, son. You've done a great job. Thank you, Dad. I appreciate that. Um, That's my new moment right now. Someone in the text line goes, maybe uh, Klein's (laughs) wife killed his mic. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to finish this up before you ask your question, Pete. So you were always a big fan, but your cardio levels never uh, let you portray that to Kim as you went to the building every day? Well, yeah, because it was, I mean, one flight of stairs is a lot to ask of a guy. So by the time I was up there, I was a touch out of breath and didn't really want that to come across. So it could only just muster up like a quick, hi, anytime <laughs> I walked up there. Well, it worked out, Klein, because now you're happily married. I love um, love. I, that is love. I like that. Okay, uh, Klein's got the last spin. Let's rock and roll. Career. Oh, okay. Um, so There's only five categories. Is... You can't be surprised when you get one. 
Well, no, it's just this one. I've had a lot of these ones have been written down since like February and okay. obviously just getting to them now. So had to just do a quick, I have one for career, right? Yeah, I do. Um, one thing about working from home or working during this uh, pandemic that you'd like to keep going forward. Who, um, you know what? Here, here is the one thing from the pandemic that I would like to see become a regular thing when we're through this and and when we come out the other side. I guess I think for the most part, people have been really awesome to one another during this time. Like when we weren't social distancing and when I wasn't deliberately walking out of my way to get out of somebody else's way while I'm walking on the sidewalk and when I wasn't going onto the street so that I could give the couple on the sidewalk six feet you you would rarely acknowledge or or say hi to somebody walking by you you know I I would try but a lot of times that you just there, there wouldn't be any eye contact or but now when I go out of my way to get out of somebody's way so I don't have to be close to somebody. I like more often than not, far more often than not, I get a smile or a thank you or a nod. Like, so I, at some point we're not going to have to be doing that anymore. Like at some point I'm going to be able to walk past somebody on a sidewalk without one of us having to alter our courses significantly. And, and I'm looking forward to those days. But what I hope continues is that, hey, you know what? still say hi you still say how's your night going or a smile or whatever the case may be I've, I've quite enjoyed that despite the fact that you're doing things that typically wouldn't necessarily lead to smiles and hellos so i'm hoping that the uh just being nice and, and more friendlier to your fellow human your fellow calgarian i hope because it's been really that's been one of the the positive uplifting things through all this when being outside so i hope that continues when this is done uh, I'm nice. a big fan of having absolutely zero contact with anyone while I'm at work. Uh, I have I don't have to say hi to any, I don't have to say hi to anybody. I don't have to come near anybody. There's no wait. Well, hold for on. Anything. Apparently, Jason DeForest has gotten a hold of uh, Logan's mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, yeah, this is just how Jay wishes life was. On a, I don't have to run into DeForest in the morning. I, I rarely, rarely see the evening producer. I'm just. Uh, look, it's uh, a small work environment. I have to say. Anyways, actually, the biggest thing for me. Uh, is the the lack of traffic getting downtown all the time uh, is just dramatically reduced for me to uh, to get to the station in the afternoons and get here. So I, I know that that's not something that will ever continue because once people start going back to work. But for the time being, the uh, nice quick drive in and out to uh, work has been rather nice. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll go with that one. Nice. Yeah, for me... Working from home, I've just got into a pretty good rhythm, um, kind of routine-wise. So that's been that's been actually really solid. And just having access to work stuff from home, I didn't I didn't have Burley from home before, so there was a lot that I would just have to like type into a Google Doc and then go into work and do that kind of stuff. So to be able to do that kind of stuff from home has been um, has been really really good. So just kind of getting into a routine and being able to to stick with it a bit more regularly has been awesome. Yeah, they're going to take that away from you as soon as we're back to normal. I hope you know that. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> as long as you know. Uh, there is another edition. Good stuff, gentlemen. There's another edition of Wild Card Wednesday. This has been Wild Card Wednesday on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. One other uh, 
one other thing that should carry on from pandemic on the text line, a uh, 960-960. I'd like the two-meter buffer in lineups to stay a thing. Stay off my ass. That's his personal space. Or that that listener likes uh, his or her personal space. Um, On my uh, getting broken up on Valentine's Day 2013, somebody texts in, that's the day I got together with my wife, 2013. What a year. I text it back. I'm like, yeah, your Valentine's Day was a little bit better than mine that year. Um, This one, uh, I thought Pat's roofer girl date was going to be the flagstick moment. That was a moment that I will never forget. I'll say that much. The roofer date uh, will live on in infamy. I feel like that comes up on a regular basis on Wild Card Wednesday, but I think for good reason. Take a break. When we come back, Flames alumni member Colin Patterson on a really generous donation made by the alumni today. And uh, just an update on uh, what one of our favorite former Flames is up to. Colin Patterson coming up next on Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Back to Pinder and Steinberg, Calgary Sports Talk in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Let's say hello to Calgary Flames alumni member Colin Patterson on a Friday afternoon. Now, you don't usually ever need an excuse to chat with Patter because it's always a fun conversation. But today, a pretty cool thing done by the Flames alumni. But first of all, Mr. Patterson, happy Friday. How are you, pal? Pat, great. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. How you hanging in? Oh, you know what? Actually, pretty good. I mean, it's, you know, at least the weather picked up a bit and, able to get outside for a little bit last time i think we talked it was snowing so this was much better sure was <laughs> yeah at least at least at least the weather's nice and you can get yourself outside and you don't have to bundle up which is uh, a definite positive is um is your wife sick of you yet or how is that going before or now <laughs> both <laughs> she's probably i would say more sick now of me yeah I don't know. I don't, I don't know how she could be, but uh, it's uh, it's good to hear from you. Hey, you uh, you and Lanny uh, presented a pretty sizable check to the Mustard Seed today, ten thousand dollars to our friends at the Mustard Seed from the Calgary Flames alumni. Tell us uh, tell us a little bit more about that, Pat. Uh, you know, it was actually great, Pat. Uh, we have an opportunity. We have some extra money in in our alumni fund. And we decided, well, why don't we do something now? Because this is a time of need for a lot of people, a lot of charities. So we've had a longstanding relationship with the Mustard Seed. And this goes back probably 20-some years, uh, especially the last 18, where Lanny's son, Graham, actually started a hockey game out at Springbank where the grade 12s play the Flames alumni. And in order to get into the game, you have to pay, and that raises money. But they also bring much-needed items like socks or, uh, you know, essentials like that that will help uh, the homeless people and and people on the streets. So uh, this has been going on for 18 years. And so we decided, hey, this would be a great time to to help the mustard seed. Obviously, the last probably six to eight weeks have been very tough on them. Uh, The need doesn't go away. In fact, it increases. So... Uh, they were in need of some funds, and we decided as an alumni to step up and, and donate $10,000 to them. Well, that is that is awesome. And I think that's one thing that 
you know, I, I think people in this city are, are well aware of how involved the alumni is in a number of charitable events when it comes to appearances, whether it be charity hockey games or, or charity golf tournaments and, and appearances and things like that. And you guys have been doing your own golf tournament for decades now and, and continue to get uh, continue to put incredible money back into the community here in Calgary. But one thing that I don't know if people are as aware of, and, and I think that you, know, you guys don't like to blow your own horns, but you also do have an alumni fund, and, and you do make a, a number of charitable donations each year, too. Tell us a, a little bit more about that and, and just, I guess, how, how gratifying it is to make some financial contributions to Southern Alberta Charities. Yeah, I think, it, you know, you hit on it. Uh, our guys do a lot of stuff through a lot of communities and a lot of charities. And uh, it's it's neat that we've started to accumulate a little bit of, of money that we can give back ourselves on behalf of the Flames alumni. A lot of times we're going to events and, that, you know, if we go to the an event for somebody, it's often in their name, and, and which is great. And we're all happy to attend and do that. But now when we're able to, you know, sort of acquire a little bit of money that are funds that we can donate out on behalf of the Flames alumni, it, it makes a, a much, it's a big difference between just going to an event and, and presenting the check. You know, both Lanny and I had a, had a big grin on our face, although for part of it we did have masks on for the, uh, <laughs> uh, for the pictures, which, which my wife made when they were, they're just beautiful because they matched our red outfit that we had on on our jerseys. But uh, it was, you know, we're just beaming. And it was really interesting people, you know, coming by the street because we were out on the street honking your horns and waving and saying thank you. And it just gives you a tremendous amount of uh, gratitude to, to be able to help out in some small way. And, and we know that there's, as we said, there's so many charities out there right now that are struggling and looking for for different funds and anything you can do, uh, whether it's, you know, on a, a larger scale or a smaller scale uh, mm-hmm. can help. No doubt about it. Uh, tell us about, it's it's difficult to make appearances, obviously, during a pandemic, and, and there are definitely some challenges for everybody right now, but tell us about the the alumni and, and how you've been staying busy and staying in the community during uh, this, this lockdown and this unprecedented situation. Yeah, we've been, you know, uh, amongst ourselves, we've been chatting about, you know, how can we make an impact and how can we keep involved with uh, the community? And, and a lot of it's through the Flames. And, uh, you know, we've done a couple of things for Flames TV. Uh, but um, there's also the aspect of we our golf tournament, which was canceled, you, you talked about earlier. So, But there's still planning going into that. And we were working with Wild Rose, too, as well, to present a, a beer again this year which those funds from the sale of that beer, which is called the Alumni SA, it's a hazy India session ale, and it's very tasty, and it's just come out. So people can buy that, and 50 cents for every four-pack goes to uh, cerebral palsy kids uh, for families, and that is the bike program. And, and that bike program is so instrumental for these kids so that they can get out and get some physical exercise. And it, it is a fantastic program, and they've been able to help a lot of a lot of kids get get bikes. They adapt these bikes to the needs of each individual child, which is really special. And so, without the the golf tournament this year, um, there's a, a a big gap for them for the fundraising. And so, this is the second year we've done a beer and worked with Wild Rose on it. So it, it's really good. And you know, just things like that. We've been talking about some we'll have some further donations that we're going to make over the next uh, few weeks, probably to the month. And then there's also things that we're doing, you know, 
through Zoom, uh, you know, just chatting with kids and people who are in difficult situations. So our alumni keeps, you know, even though the times are tough because we're not able to go out, we're still fairly active. Yeah, and I, I got to say, and I, I say this every time we talk to a member of the alumni, but I, there's not a better alumni association in all of professional sports than the Calgary Flames alumni, and, and I really do mean that, Patter. You guys do unbelievable work. Colin Patterson's with us, um, part of the Calgary Flames alumni. Just a couple more before we let you go. First of all, that Twitter account is, is starting to – really fire up but that is a great follow you've got peter marr uh doing the this date in flames history on it some great pictures that that twitter account has been a pretty good addition to the flames alumni uh cachet yeah our, our social media has really picked up it's these young guys and the alumni now lanny was just uh, just writing a letter to mail it to me i said lanny you know they've got some <laughs> other methods now <laughs> but, but no it's been great you know uh, uh the Twitter, and then we're on Instagram too, and Facebook, and now we've just sort of launched on on LinkedIn. But you know, you have a guy like Peter Marr doing this day in in Flames history for you. It's absolutely fabulous, and he's just got so much knowledge. And you know, we talked to him about it, and it was like two days later we had you know almost a whole year's worth of stuff. He goes, you know, if it goes past June, whatever it is, I, I don't have anything beyond that. And so, well, Peter, that's all right. You know, it's a big plus to have that. And then we have, you know, especially on Instagram, we have some videos of guys talking about either their first game or their first goal or, you know, tough guys in the NHL. So we're starting to acquire some information. And then we're also, you know, developing our website too, which is really good. Have you um... – we Pinder and I had you on a number of weeks ago, and we were talking about the '89 run and and some of your memories from uh, that that time in your life and that time in Flames history. But they've been replaying all six games on Sportsnet. Have you have you been watching the series? Have you tuned in at all? You know, Pat, I haven't. I've seen maybe a few minutes here and there, but they've shown that game six uh, so many times. People think I'm a goal <laughs> yeah, scorer. <laughs> Hey, you scored another goal. I go, it's actually the same game. You know, <laughs> don't, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> you saw the big one. <laughs> that it, it was a big one, though. Like at least give yourself credit. And speaking of uh, speaking of the big one, I hear that uh, somebody might be celebrating a milestone birthday on Monday. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to believe. It's uh, sixty years. So I never never thought that you know when you're sixty you'd be you know, acting like a 20 year old kid, but I still am. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, uh, well, happy, uh, happy early birthday. First of all, Pat, um, hopefully you can get out and have a little, do, do something fun, uh, in, in some way, shape or form on Monday. Cause that is a milestone birthday at, uh, at 60. Thanks for doing this today. Happy birthday. Thanks for all you're doing in Southern Alberta and the Calgary community with the alumni. And that is awesome. The $10,000 donation to the mustard seed today. Great work, my friend. It is uh, always awesome to catch up with you. Pat, thank you very much. Thanks for having us on and, uh, you know, have a great weekend. You too. It's Colin Patterson of the Calgary Flames alumni joining us on the program today. A $10,000 donation from the alumni to the Mustard Seed. And as Colin said, I mean, it's not like a pandemic means that the Mustard Seed doesn't have needs or demand. In fact, the uh, demand has only gone up since the 
since the pandemic hit us. So uh, great stuff from Colin Patterson. You got to go check out the Flames alumni on Twitter and Instagram. They're outstanding. Um, some of the pictures that they're able to throw in there from different guys. It's, it's a really cool follow if you're a, a Flames fan and a Flames historian. Thanks to Colin Patterson for joining us today. Okay, we're putting Peter Klein to work when we come back. Kleiner Aww. has got all that we need to know about UFC 249. You want to win some money this weekend on the first major sporting event since the pandemic in North America? Uh, we're going to do it with Peter Klein next. UFC 249 picks around the corner as we wrap up Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. The first major sporting event in North America since the sporting apocalypse hit just before the midway mark of March is tomorrow's UFC 249 in Jacksonville, Florida, in front of zero screaming fans. But still, we have a major sporting event taking place, and now we've got an opportunity to break it down for you. We have got, you know, fairly large mixed martial arts fan in Pat and massive and encyclopedic knowledge of mixed martial arts in Peter Klein. So I think I know who you should listen to, and I think that um, I know who to uh, lean towards when it comes to the expert picks. Welcome back to the program. It's Pat Steinberg and Peter Klein along with you at the top of the hour in conversation with Ron McLean, a coaching addition today. Toronto Maple Leafs head coach Sheldon Keith, Toronto Raptors head coach Nick Nurse talk coaching with Ron McLean at the top of the hour. But, Clatter, before we get into odds and picks for UFC 249, tell us about the card. Tell us about what we've got in store tomorrow night. Well, it's a really stacked card, actually. You look at just the prelims with Donald Cerrone against Anthony Pettis, Alexi Olenek taking on Fabricio Verdum, Carlos Barza, and uh, the karate hottie Michelle Waterson, and Jacare Souza and Uriah Hall. That itself would be a, a solid card, but the, the main card with Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje on top and the return of Dominic Cruz. Talked about it with John Pollock a little bit earlier in an uh, interview you can find right now on sportsnet.ca slash 960, but the Dominic Cruz comeback, if he pulls it off on Saturday, could be one of the, the great sports stories of the year. Now, obviously... 100%. That's it's it's a bit different now with how 2020 is going, but the the rash of injuries that Dominic Cruz has gone through ACL tears on both knees, two ACL surgeries on one knee because the first one just didn't work, I guess. And, and it's it's just comeback after comeback after comeback. And if he's able to pull it off on Saturday, just an unbelievable story. So you got the human interest aspect of things and uh, some pretty high quality violence happening as well. I got to say, Dominic Cruz, and, and, and I am biased on this because I've interviewed him four or five times. One of my favorite sports interviews is Dominic Cruz. Insightful, great quotes, accommodating with his time. I've always enjoyed uh, interviewing Dominic Cruz, even back in his WEC days before uh, the WEC merged into the UFC and they brought in the lighter weight mm -hmm. divisions where, where Dominic fights. Um, but, like, has always been one of my favorite fighters. And you know what? 
when he's been healthy and when he's been the bantamweight champion of the world, he's been he's been in conversation for the pound for pound title. Like when when Dominic Cruz was at his peak and when Cruz wasn't having to deal with all the multiple knee surgeries, the guy's fought like four times since October of 2011 because of of all the injuries that he's sustained. But when when he was when he was healthy and when he was fighting more regularly, this guy was one of the best fighters in the world. Yeah, he was. And uh, I think a very strong case can be made that he's probably the best bantamweight in MMA history. Obviously not the the longest lineage in the Ultimate Fighting Championship, but as you mentioned, going back to the WEC days, uh, I think he has a real case as the the top bantamweight of all time. Henry Cejudo would probably like to to keep the crown for current bantamweight king, so we'll we'll see how that goes. But yeah, Dominic Cruz was kind of held court a little bit when the UFC was here a couple years ago. Um, Michael Bisbing seemed to dominate the conversation a bit more than Dominic Cruz did, but so insightful you listen. Yeah, it's shocking, I know. Um... (laughs) <laughs> it was it was quite the night. But uh, you listen to Dominic Cruz on commentary, and you always learn something from his commentary. You become a smarter fan listening to him. So now that he gets out there and tries to prove one of his theories that ring rust doesn't exist, uh, going to be a fun watch on Saturday. You take a look at who, like, so, so Cruz won the Bantamweight Championship in the WEC in 2010 has defended against Joe Benavides, Scott Jorgensen, twice against Uriah Faber, one in WEC, one in the UFC, Demetrius Johnson. Um, he, he had to vacate the title um, when he defended for the second time in the UFC, vacated the title, came back, won it against TJ Dillashaw, um, and then defended it against Uriah Faber uh, a few months later, then had to vacate it again due to injury. His last fight was was actually no lost it um to cody Cor- cody garbrandt in december of 2016 that was his last fight hasn't fought since december 2016 and he'll be fighting at ufc 249 tomorrow so let's get into odds we just talked a lot about Cruz and um and henry's fight so right now uh Cruz is the underdog in this bantamweight title fight on saturday night who do you like and uh where are some of the numbers that you've uh that you've honed in on that you like well, I, I actually really like Dominic Cruz in this fight. I think that we, we do have to assume a lot. Um, we do have to assume that he is going to be 100%, but for, for Dominic Cruz, I still think the movement, the skill that he shows on the feet is going to be a bit too much for Henry Cejudo to be able to to handle. He's an Olympic wrestler, so obviously there's a, a pretty big strength there. But I think Dominic Cruz's footwork, his circling ability, he's going to be able to, to stay away largely from Henry Cejudo, keep him on the outside and box him up. So I, I like Dominic Cruz in this one. Seeing him in, uh, I think the best number you're seeing is plus 210 for Dominic Cruz. Um, I, I like that one a lot. If you want to add a little bit more, him winning it by decision, I, I would like that too. But just straight up Dominic Cruz winning, paying pretty good at plus 210. So I like Dominic Cruz there. Well, yeah, you see uh, plus 210 at Sports Interaction. Our friends over at Sports mm-hmm. Interaction have Dominic Cruz at plus 210. And I'm with you. I, I think I think Cruz has got a really good chance of winning this fight. I don't think having him as a large underdog where he is in a lot of spots here, is, uh, th- this, this seems like a whole lot more of an even fight. I get it that you're you're always going to lean towards the defending champion in Cejudo, but I, I really like Cruz in this fight. I like it from the personal interest. So I, I'm a sports interaction guy, and to see him at plus 
210. I'm all over that. What about our main event where Tony Ferguson, who would never be favored when it comes to a trash talk competition because he's just <laughs> awful at it. Uh, he thinks he's amazing, but he's terrible at trash talking. Um, I wouldn't say that to his face because he'd rip me in half. No. But uh, t- tell us, he is he is favored in a large way uh, in, in most books. How do you see the main event going? Yeah, I see this one going Tony Ferguson's way. I, I just think he's more skilled than Justin Gaethje. Gaethje, um, former World Series of Fighting champion, is an incredibly entertaining fighter and brings it on the feet, uh, which is strange considering his wrestling background, but uh, I don't know. The, the, the way he fights, you, you would assume he's never seen a wrestling room in his life because it is all stand-up with just, uh, Justin Gaethje. Ferguson, I think, is just too skilled on the feet, going to be able to, again, use that length, use that reach, keep Gaethje on the outside, and, and beat him up pretty good. The the odds, you're not getting great numbers with Tony Ferguson at uh, minus 205 at, at Sports Interaction, so if you want to add a little bit more in your Favor. I could see Tony Ferguson finishing Justin Gaethje. I think Gaethje is tough as all hell, but he's going to keep coming forward, and that's going to be bad news against Tony Ferguson, who beats him up. So uh, I like Ferguson finishing this one probably somewhere in the championship rounds. So if you want to go with a finish back there, that, that would be the move that I would go with. Okay. And, uh, and what other what other fights catch your eye? Give us a couple of other uh, fights that you like and, and potential ways that you could win some money on them. Well, I would go with any kind of under on rounds you can get for Nganu against Rosenstrike. Those two guys are just going to throw for the hills. Uh, and if the fight does go the distance, it's going to suck anyway, and you're not going to want to profit off of that anyway. So uh, th- this is one that's probably going to end in the first round, I would say. Uh, so go with that. And I cannot wrap my head around Donald Cerrone being an underdog against Anthony Pettis. Um, Pettis losing on the, the same card that Donald Cerrone lost on uh, against Conor McGregor back in January. And I can understand maybe the narrative of a, a beaten Donald Cerrone talking about a couple issues mentally going into that fight. Maybe that's where the, this line is skewed a little bit. But uh, I think Donald Cerrone pressures Anthony Pettis. We've seen Pettis have some trouble with guys getting right in his face. That, that was a problem he had in his last fight. Uh, I think Donald Cerrone does that in this bout, and that pressure with the, the skill that he has is going to be enough to get the upset wins. So seeing him at plus 120 was a bit of a surprise. And the last one, Alexei Olenek at plus 240 against Fabricio Verdum. Coming off of a USADA suspension, Verdum hasn't fought since 2018. And while he is probably the best heavyweight grappler of all time and in the conversation for just one of the best MMA grapplers of all time, Alexei Olenek is extremely skilled on the ground. I don't see Verdum catching Olenek in anything that Virgin would be throwing at him. So I, I like Olenek there as a, a plus 240 underdog on Sports Interaction. It's going to be fascinating to watch a UFC event with nobody in the stands and still on pay-per-view. They're going to pull out most of the stops, no in-octagon interviews. I mean, we're still talking about uh, a pandemic going on, and we're still talking about social distancing being adhered to, so on and so forth. So no uh, Joe Rogan post-fight interviews. But, yeah, I'm fascinated to see how this goes off. I think that... I'm hoping that it goes off well. I'm hoping that it's successful because I do think that it is, well, it's the first step in terms of major professional sports returning in North America. It's, it's not a perfect comparison to the NBA or major league baseball or the NHL, but it still is something. And I think that there's a lot that can be taken if the UFC pulls this off successfully. So enjoy it. If you're ordering it, if you're not ordering it and you're just kind of a fringe fight fan, 
I, I, I'd um, recommend you tune into the three-letter network because that main event on the prelim card for free is pretty good, the one that uh, yeah, Clyde was wicked. just talking about in Cerrone and Pettis. So even if you're not looking at buying the pay-per-view, uh, I'd tune into the free card before the pay-per-view gets going at 8 o'clock. I'm, I'm really looking forward to Cejudo and Cruz in the Bantamweight Championship. Keith G and Ferguson in the main event I think will be a fun fight as well uh, in the lightweight division. Uh, okay, Kleiner, enjoy the fights tomorrow. Have a good weekend, my man. You as well, sir. Enjoy the fights, and we'll talk all about it on Monday. Logo, be safe. Have a good weekend, brother. Uh, for Logan Gordon and Peter Klein, my name is Pat Steinberg. Wrapping things up in conversation with Ron McClain is next. And then our Flames Rewind tonight is 6 o'clock for the home opener. Back to October 5th of this season. Flames at home to the Vancouver Canucks. That's coming your way at 6 o'clock. We'll talk to you Monday. All of our interviews are up at sportsnet.ca slash 960 right now. This has been Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan.